0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. This is episode number seven, and I'm recording this intro on July 31st, the day the episode goes out. Also, my wife's birthday. She doesn't actually listen to the show per se, although she does tend to hear it in playbacks when I'm going through for quality control. So, hello, I love you, haha. <laughs> um, hopefully, she hears that. I also believe it's Harry Potter's birthday as well, so there's a bit of a genre tie in too. Now, There's a lot happening in Doctor Who at the moment With the show recording at present I notice Capaldi and Mackie are back from some overseas shooting at the moment But do you know what? I don't really know much about it Because I'm ignoring a fair bit of behind-the-scenes stuff at present And this is exactly the same thing I'm doing with Star Wars And a lot of other fandoms I have at present Because without trying to sound all hipster about it I'm thinking it actually makes fandom a bit sweeter You know, I followed... The making of the the last Star Wars film religiously every day. I knew all the rumours, and in fact, before the movie came out, I made a, a running order of what I thought would be in the movie, and it turned out to be about ninety five percent right. And that experience was fun in some ways, but in other ways, afterwards, I thought, oh, you know what? It might have been better to have been excited and and go in fresh, you know, on that film. And that's what I'm going to do with the next Star Wars film, Rogue One. And that's what. I'm doing with the next series of Doctor Who. You know, I know there's been some overseas filming. I know Capaldi's got a greenish coat. I know Pearl Mackey is Bill as the companion. I know Matt Lucas is going to pop up every now and then as a companion. I'm not quite sure how that will work, as he had his head chopped off in the Christmas special and got stuck inside a robot. Outside of that, though, I'm not really that interested in hearing what episode titles are, whether they're one or two parts, or... Whatever, because fandom is just that bit sweeter Well, for me at least, at this time in my life It's that little bit sweeter It might not be for everyone Um, I completely understand wanting to follow something Religiously, you know, find out every little tidbit about it Because, hey, I've done that, I've done that recently You know, with the Star Wars film But for this time of my life I'm finding it's, it's actually kind of fun not to know what's happening Anyway, what else is happening? In related to Doctor Who type news There's a new Torchwood comic coming out um, in a few days, in, in the week ahead. I've got a review copy of it here, a PDF, from our friends at Titan Comics, along with an invite to potentially speak to Carol Barriman and or John Barriman, also known as Captain Jack. Yes, that's right. So I've said to them, hey, look, the Doctor Who show would love to do that, but uh, I haven't heard back from them yet. So I've not actually read the comic. I'll read the comic in advance of doing those interviews, whether they're, text-based and we put them up on the website or whether we do get some sort of audio going on i don't know but uh take note there is a new torchwood comic coming out it uh, apparently has the same continuity as the big finish audios so it's sort of tying into a whole um timeline if you've been following all that sort of stuff and i think that's quite cool i i actually like torchwood i know many doctor who fans are kind of funny about it but i i actually really like it what else is news? Oh. This is the last Doctor Who show. Uh, No, wait, don't turn off yet. This is the last Doctor Who show that will have um, just myself kicking off these episodes. From next episode, I will have a co-host. And it's not one of the existing team members. It is someone you've heard on the show before, though. I think I'll leave it a surprise until uh, episode 8, eh? (laughs) Now, to kick off this episode I'm going to have a chat with Lex About the 11th Doctor's era The 11th Doctor is Lex's favourite And uh, I didn't mind the era myself So we're going to bring our top three stories to the table Hopefully we won't double up So let's get you all in the mood with an audio clip And then I'll join you in a moment with Lex
1: When you wake up You'll have a mum and dad You won't even remember me. Well, you'll remember me a little. There'll be a story in your head. That's okay. We're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one, eh? Because it was, you know. It was the best. The daft old man who stole a magic box... Away. did I ever tell you that I stole it while well, I borrowed it I was always going to take it back oh that box Amy you'll dream about that box he'll never leave you big and little at the same time Brand new and ancient and the bluest blue ever. And the times we had, I eh? Would have had. Ever. In your dreams, they'll still be there. <laughs> the Doctor and Amy Pond. And
0: the days that never came. So hi, Lex. Hello. How you been?
2: Great. How have you been?
0: I've been very well. I love when we get to talk like this. It's so interactive.
2: Yes, it is. <laughs> it's fantastic. So we're going to play an exciting game today.
0: We are going to play an exciting game, which I call the 11th Doctor game. I just made that up.
2: Oh, Is that the name? Because I was about to ask. What
0: is the name of the game? It's the 11th Doctor game. Um, So basically, we've selected three Matt Smith stories that we love, and I have no idea what you've selected, and you have no idea what I've selected. Is that correct?
2: Well, I have a pretty good guess on one of them.
0: Interesting. Okay. You'll have to explain that if it comes up. Um, We'll introduce one at a time, and if we've both picked the same story, we can say bingo or you know geronimo or some other word like that and we'll probably talk a little more about that one as as we both you know have a bit to say about it and all up i'd say we're looking at a minimum of three stories obviously if we both pick the same ones or a maximum of six Mm-hmm. do you want to go first or will i
2: uh, i guess i'll go first okay in order of the series yes. does that matter yes okay well my first one are you ready i'm ready series five eleventh hour
0: Okay, well, what can we say about that?
2: Well, first, I would have expected, how about bingo? No. Nope. Snap? Nope. No. No bingo? No. Nope. Oh. <laughs> that was the one I I could have, I, I was so sure you were going to do that one.
0: No, no. <laughs>
2: it's it's the best. It's, oh, okay, all right, fine. Look, so, okay, now I, was... I just, that's why it's my favorite. Why? My number one. I can't believe you didn't choose it. <laughs>
0: Please tell me, tell me about it. Tell me why you chose it.
2: It's the best first appearance of a doc, a new doctor that I've ever seen. I would and- agree. Okay, good. good. Less <laughs> insulted. No, and- I,
0: I agree. I completely agree. It is absolutely the best uh, for a new doctor. Oh, yeah, ever. Yeah, ever. I'll go with that.
2: I suppose I should uh, be a little less sensitive for the rest of this game. I'll get used to it. <laughs> yeah. It is the best. It's, I, In my opinion, I really, it's the best I've seen yet and, uh, what is it? I think the overall, there's just, there's such a magical feel about it all. Uh, Matt Smith, you know, this game is, we're talking about Matt Smith episodes and Matt Smith is magic in this episode. True, he definitely develops into, I don't know, a different version of the Doctor. Some mm-hmm. would say a drastically different version of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Yeah, and I would say he definitely incorporates like Patrick Trout and E's stuff later on in the other episodes that I'm going to choose later, especially. Um, But in this case, it really is something special in this episode, the way he portrays the Doctor. Magic. He glows.
0: Yeah, the the whole first series, he's sort of feeling out, I think, where he wants his Doctor to be. And I find that quite interesting. In fact, his first series is probably my favourite Matt Smith
2: series. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The first series five is probably the most dense material of all the best episodes. I think mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. everyone. So, so where were you when you saw this? Had you been watching the tenant episodes and you were coming into this, you know, on a, uh, what would you call it on a, on a buzz from, you know, tenant leaving and his big ending, or was this where you started with doctor who?
2: It was practically where I started with doctor who, um, my cousin got me into doctor who and, uh, I, I, was seeing snippets of it for maybe like a year or two beforehand, little bits mm-hmm. at a time. Whenever I'd see her, and um, the eleventh hour was one she was particularly just totally um, enthralled with. I guess um, it, she she's really great at telling stories. Uh, she told me all about the eleventh hour. Did Matt Smith impressions about the apple, and it got <laughs> me hooked. I yeah, it, it was. I don't know. So. I had that first maybe inoculation. It was in my system. Um, it is basically where I started off with Doctor Who. I wasn't coming from David Tennant. Um, so when I very seriously got into Doctor Who, of course, I started at the beginning and watched it all the way through. And by the time that I um, finished to David Tennant's, um, the last episode of David Tennant, I don't know. It just kind of went right back into that former first um interaction, I guess, Mm. the Doctor Who world that she introduced me to, Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah it it wasn't so much of I didn't have that comparison of David Tennant versus Matt Smith that everybody else had I was automatically already on Matt Smith
0: Yeah, and and it's a good jumping on point in general because there's no companions carrying over, it is a a really fresh start for the series, so that might have helped as well for your jumping on
2: Oh absolutely, it's a really easy jump it's an easy jump, just smooth right into the the car seat, and you can drive along to the rest of the Doctor Who episodes very comfortably.
0: <laughs> you know,
2: <laughs> a smooth transition
0: for sure. And, that's and a James
2: Bond image I had in my mind jumping into the car seat and just driving. That's a good image. Yeah,
0: I like that. Uh, look, for me, I remember I'd, I'd obviously been watching all the way through, and so I was keen to see what Matt Smith would be like. And I think he just nailed it. And I think the story was great. I mean, it's fairly simple. You know, the the monster isn't that interesting. It doesn't really have a big plan or anything. You know, it's just sort of there. (laughs) Um, The crack in the wall is a very interesting thing. Obviously, that becomes quite a thing. But just as a showcase for the new Doctor and how he behaves. and You know, something he did in that episode, which comes to me right now, which I wished had continued he he gets in that is it a fire truck or a rescue vehicle and he says i've commandeered a vehicle and yeah. <laughs> i wish <laughs> that had become more of a thing you know that he was always stealing cars or something
2: oh yeah that would have been a wonderful trope to follow up on yeah
0: mm, yeah cuz yeah. i love that moment i would have loved to have seen that followed up on but uh, <laughs> but no
2: yeah him, <laughs> i've commandeered a vehicle wee, <laughs> wee, 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 wee. Yeah, yeah that's so great uh huh uh, there are problems with the 11th hour, of course, as always. There are always some, like, minor technicality problems in a lot of the stories. Uh, but, uh, like, the Atraxi, for instance. How did the attract I'm um, sorry, Prisoner Zero know about the silence? That's always bothered me. That, yeah, he came through a crack. One of these things that are supposed to, like, that touch universes together. Mm-hmm. And somehow he knows all about the silence. <laughs> That's always yeah. kind of
0: me <laughs> you've, you've got me i have no yeah. idea <laughs> yeah. Yeah. if there's anyone out there who knows answers on a postcard please
2: right yeah always <laughs> so I, I guess that pretty much concludes it i just the magic and i don't know sort of the fairy tale or maybe it's also kind of a campy like there's so much there's a lot of flashlight use and um i don't know adventures during the night um mm-hmm. with monsters in the dark that kind of stuff it's just it I don't know. It's really easy to get into. Sort of a uh, I don't know. It takes you back to your childhood fairy tale world that you might have had. I don't know. I certainly had it. Anyways, I think I'm done with the eleventh hour. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, look! It's the madman landing in your back garden. It's you know. It's it's night time. Oh. She's alone. There's no parents around. It's 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 every kid's sort of dream. So yeah, perfect.
2: And of course, all the crazy goofiness. Oh yeah. Yeah,
0: there's there's a lot of good stuff in that episode, that's for sure
2: yes. Yeah, okay, so that's my solid first number one choice Your oh, turn
0: Alrighty, and I was going to say, look, very solid I, I could have easily picked that one um, I do have a runner-up that I'll mention when we get into Series 6 stories um, Okay But it, it wasn't even the 11th hour Which goes to show that there are some good Matt Smith stories out there
2: Oh, too many, too many
0: <laughs> What's your name?
2: Amelia Pond
0: Oh, that's a brilliant name
1: Amelia Pond, like a name in a fairy tale. Oh, in Scotland, Amelia.
3: No, I had to move to England. It's rubbish.
1: So what about your mum and dad, then? they upstairs. Thought we'd have woken them by now.
3: Don't have a mum and dad. Just an aunt.
1: I don't even have an aunt.
3: You're lucky.
4: I
1: know. So your aunt... Where's she? She's out. And she left you all alone?
3: I'm not scared. Of course
1: you're not. You're not scared of anything. Box falls out of the sky, man falls out of the box, man eats fish custard. And look at you. Just sitting there. So you know what I think?
3: What?
1: Must be out of a scary crack in your wall.
0: All right, my first story from series five is mm-hmm. Amy's Choice.
2: Oh. Uh,
0: Have I got a bingo?
2: Uh, no. No? no. I, uh, that episode is a very good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, st- st- r- the way it's written, I like it. Uh, I don't know, why did you pick it? Was it uh, more about Smith or the storyline, the writing?
0: Oh, there's, there's so many elements to it. I mean, I love this whole idea of what is real and what is a dream, in it you know I, I love stuff like that in regular movies and tv you know yeah. and, and there's a very real sense of what is what is real was a dream i mean we get the sense that the rory with the ponytail and the the mad pensioners in the village that they're you know fighting like they're zombies uh we get the sense that that's probably not reality but you always think but is there a twist on this
2: yeah what? the cool twilight zone effect
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I spent the whole episode pretty sure I knew what was going on, but still with that, that feeling in your gut that, oh, it, it might was, not be this.
2: Yeah, it, it had a, it was a strike. It had, it very easily instilled in you this sense of eeriness, of not being certain of what's true, what's real. It, it was there. Mm. It was very potent.
0: Mm. Good writing. Oh, absolutely. And then you have the uh, the dream lord. You know, who is such an interesting character on multiple levels, you know. I was sitting there thinking, is this the Valiard from Trial of a Time Lord? I'm sure I wasn't the only person thinking that. Um, yeah. And essentially, it was a very similar concept to the Valiard, like it was the, the darker side of the Doctor, in, embodied in a, in a person. Yeah,
2: that's exactly what it was.
0: And we through that, we get this, and the viewers, particularly new viewers, I think, get this sense that the Doctor... Has this strange opinion of himself. he does have his dark side and his dark moments and might not think well of himself at times yeah. and And that sort of comes out in the dream I was like, oh, there's some layers to the the character, you know, yeah. particularly if you, if you're new to the doctor, he's not just one-dimensional hero type uh, character."
2: Yeah, actually, I guess I kind of glanced over that one. Um, I've been watching that episode. I've watched it more than once a couple of times, and for some reason I just never paid attention to that psychological insight into who the doctor is and how he might see himself. This is actually, it's pretty, I don't know, it's dark, it's surprising.
3: Mm, mm. Very
2: surprising. It, it, the doctor isn't entirely, I don't know, healthy. I, I would have thought he's just a lot more secure and, I don't know, not secure, but like stable-minded in this, how we see him of being, I don't know, more comfortable with being a good straight guy and not screwing around in people's heads like he does in that episode
0: well i i think it's like when we have friends at school or when we have colleagues at work they might seem quite normal and friendly and fun to us but really they're holding down some big emotions because you know their their cats just died or their partners just got cancer or you know and and you never know about it Uh, um but if you had a way of having an insight into their life you might see that there are darker times that you don't normally see because you don't have the sort of interactions that bring those out so Mm -hmm. you know that's that's sort of how i see it that the the doctor does have a lot of turmoil and trouble and and worry and he's lived for so long i mean that's got to do strange things to your head um Mm -hmm. But he, he sort of holds it down and suppresses it most of the time, and just puts on this veneer of you know friendliness. And I think he is genuinely friendly. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I don't think he's a a psychopath or anything in the right. making. But
2: well, hopefully not. Oh, doctor exactly
0: <laughs> Me. Yeah, we've had the Colin Baker doctor, so we'll, <laughs> we can move on from that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think he's like the colleague at work who always smiles and is happy to you. But when they go home, they might have all sorts of trouble in their life.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I should have appreciated more in the past. I will now. (laughs) I appreciate this for my general Doctor Who fanship.
0: Mm. Mm. And I don't know if I mentioned this earlier when I was just rattling on about the stuff I liked in the episode, but but there's comedy in this episode as well. I mean, there's there's the dark stuff with the Doctor being dark, with the fact that the Doctor and Amy are sitting in that van let's just ram it into this house and kill ourselves because that's the way to get out of this. I mean, how dark is that? Yeah, yeah. but at the same time, you've got this great comedy with Rory's ponytail and the way they're fighting the pensioners. Uh, doesn't one climb up to a second-story window and Rory punches her in the face or something and she falls off the, the building? I, I, <laughs> I, I seem to have that vision in my, my head for some reason. It's been a while since I've seen the episode. Um, so it was very funny at the same time. I, I thought it was a really good episode.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I remember some comedic moments when the doctor, when they would pass out. There was always something, like, that was, in my mind, I can't remember anything specific, but there are definitely comedic moments in that. Good mm. stuff. Mm. Yeah, it w- that was a good episode.
0: All righty, shall we move on? All right. Where did you pick up this cheap cabaret act?
5: Me? Oh, you're on shaky ground. Am I? If you had any more tawdry quirks, you could open up a tawdry quirk shop. The madcap vehicle, the cockamamie hair, the clothes designed by a first-year fashion student. I'm surprised you haven't got a little purple space dog. Just to ram home, what an intergalactic wag you are.
1: Where was I? Um, you were...
5: I know (laughs) where I was. So here's your challenge. Two worlds. Here, in the time machine, and there, in the village that time forgot. One is real, the other's
3: fake and
5: just to make it more interesting you're going to face in both worlds a deadly danger but only one of the dangers is real tweet tweet time to sleep
3: oh or are you waking up
0: all right then lex what have you got next
2: all right uh the lodger
0: excellent choice
2: good yes it's not a, like bit,
0: not a bingo, speech, though.
2: <laughs> okay, well, here's... I'll explain. <laughs> um, okay, What, what do I, how do I summarize this episode for me? First of all, it's the comedy, uh, and the Doctor and uh, James Gordon's interaction is something... It, it's just incredible. Like, when they're trying to uh, transmit the psychic memories of the head-banging together. <laughs> like, the <laughs> repeatedly head-banging. Um, uh, healing, um, what's his actual name? Not James uh, Gordon in the show. What's his name? Oh, uh,
3: of course, Craig. Craig. Craig yeah. yeah,
2: Healing Craig when he touches this, uh, the rot. And he gets knocked out, and the doctor puts together some kind of crazy tea potion and uses compo- uses components from the trash. and just <laughs> Out of this teacup, uh, teapot with uh, Princess Diana and uh, Charles. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know my royalty. King Charles. Am I getting this right?
0: <laughs> not, not <Princess> yet. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> He's still a prince.
2: <laughs> prince, right? The Queen. Okay. Uh, pretend that didn't happen. Feeding them out of this teapot. It's a adorably funny, um, and disgusting at the same time. Uh, so yeah, I guess I like that bit. And, um, what else can I say?
0: I like the soccer match.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I appreciate this episode because we get to see a doctor that can play soccer Mm -hmm. very well. I
0: was going to say in, in real life, Matt Smith was quite a good football player. Um, and I think it hurt his knee, and that had stopped him sort of kicking on with it, you know, no pun intended. And uh, he got to show some of those skills in this episode.
2: Uh, I think it was his back. His back. Yeah, spinal injury. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but basically, yeah, same thing. What else? I'm looking at my notes. Uh, I think my other episode is kind of like this too, how romance saves the day. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a wonderful love story in the background. Um, oh, Craig and Sophie. Yeah. Sophie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They're just, they were the sweetest. So bashful and not able to say their feelings. And the doctor just kind of helps them out. Somehow the doctor is really good at relationships.
3: Mm. <laughs> good.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. Oh, a favorite line. <laughs> Do you remember, um, when Craig and the doctor first, uh, it's like their first conversation and he hands over the key to the doctor and says, you know, if you ever need some private time or you ever bring over a girlfriend or then he looks some down and up and down a boyfriend, uh, <laughs> you just let me know. And the doctor's like, I don't understand what you mean. And, but then he's like, Oh, sure. Yes. I will be sure to tell you. And I'll probably say something like, I was not expecting this. <laughs> i love that so much it's that's what i love matt smith is so prone to just blurting out very loudly his very literal nonsensical sensical i don't know but perfect sense perfect nonsense um Mm -hmm. uh, sentiments (laughs) (laughs) now uh matt smith
0: I was going to say, assuming you haven't picked the the follow up story to to this one, I can't think of its name. Where he comes back and hangs out with Craig again, and there are Cybermen oh. under the uh, department store. Yeah, so, the so, one. so long as you haven't picked that one as your next one, can we talk about that briefly? In the sense that, did lightning strike twice when they redid this sort of storyline, or was this first first version of it probably the better of the two?
2: Oh, um, I think this was definitely the better of the two because mm. it wasn't it wasn't. Are you, wait, what are you talking, in the sense of what? Like, what are you using as the common denominator in this comparison here, in terms well, of what?
0: Well, he comes back and we, we have him and Craig again and they're in the house. This time there's, there's a baby and they do the wacky stuff and the doctor, I think, cleans the house at some stage. And isn't it funny the doctor's, you know, living in real life? But uh-huh, it just yeah. sort of treads a lot of the same ground. I mean, there are some great lines in it, especially when the lady at the department store thinks Craig and the Doctor are a gay couple, for example. There yeah. are some great oh, I, lines in it.
2: So, so great. Yeah, I loved that. It was hilarious. The episode is called Closing Time. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: But it just sort of largely retrod the same ground with some Cybermen in it.
2: Mm, yeah. Did I, I liked the Cybermen, although, I, again... For some reason, both of those episodes, The Lodger and Closing Time, the actual story of, uh, you know, battling the baddie wasn't all that impressive. Mm. Uh, which, I don't know. It, I, I liked uh, The Lodger in terms of battling the baddie. They did that better because they had those cool time loop effects that was really neat. To, I don't know if you remember that. I kind of rewatched it recently and totally had forgotten about it these time loops it's very very cool um uh and scary unnerving it was <laughs> it was very cool uh but yeah the Cybermen story wasn't as good so a c- comparison i'm going with the lodger all the way um romantically also although there is that family and the baby and that's that's nice but mm. it, the first one was just a lot stronger uh. yeah yeah, yeah so but I, I'm glad that you followed it up because the pair, the James Gordon and Matt Smith pair is incredible. So that's, yeah, I could watch that again anytime.
0: And now, of course, you've got James Corden doing the late show over in the U.S., um, oh. replacing, of course, Craig Ferguson, who was a big Doctor Who fan and was best mates with Peter Capaldi when he, they were growing up. Everything's connected, you know?
2: Yeah, no, I didn't know that, but that is so perfect. Yeah. I have watched Craig Ferguson. I like him a lot not only because he likes Doctor Who
0: yeah and, and, and James Corden's his replacement it's it's just so strange
2: uh oh or is it maybe it's on purpose it's the Doctor Who connection
0: I think so I let's think go with so. that <laughs> alright shall we move on
2: uh yeah yep.
4: I want you to go
6: you can have this back and all what have I done? For a start, talking to a cat. Lots of
1: people talk to cats.
6: And everybody loves you, and you're better at football than me, and my job, and now Sophie's all,
1: oh monkeys, monkeys, and then there's that! It's are a statement on modern society Ooh, ain't modern society awful <clears throat> me and you
6: it's not going to work out you've only been here three days it'd be the three weirdest days of my life your days will get a lot weirder if i go well, it was good weird it's not it's bad weird i can't do this anymore Red, i
1: can't leave this place i'm like you i can't see the point of anywhere else madrid ha what a dump i have to stay no you don't you have to leave i can't go just get out right. only way i'm going to show you something but shh really shh Oh, I'm going to regret this. Okay, right, first, general background.
3: You're
1: a... Yes. From... You've got a Shh, yes. 11th. Right, okay, specific detail. my ad in the paper shop window yes with this right above it which is odd because amy hasn't written it yet time travel it can that's a scanner
6: you've used non-technological technology of lamestine
2: okay your turn
0: okay also from series five vincent and the doctor
2: okay now i, I knew you were going to do this one actually not just i was certain on the 11th hour but I probably should have gone with that one. Mm. That is an excellent episode. And normally, I'm not (laughs) making you a generalization, I guess, or not trying to, but, I mean, everybody loves that episode, let's be honest.
0: Yeah, it's a very different kind of episode. Um, Mm. Obviously, through the writing and the fact that the monster is largely inconsequential, although we did mention the monster was sort of inconsequential to the last two stories as well that we were mentioning, Closing Time and uh, The Lodger.
2: But at least it was kind of unusual. Wait, no. No, not really. Creature that needs help. We've had that many times. I don't know. It Mm -hmm. felt kind of different somehow. I mean, he was invisible. Has that happened often? With Hyde. Oh,
0: well, there's the Tom Baker episode, The Invisible Enemy. I mean, there's a way to save budget on
2: (laughs) on an enemy. Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm going to rewind and just say, yeah, so the... The storyline of fighting the baddie again wasn't all that impressive not the smartest or cleverest but uh, carry on
0: <laughs> I mean I was thinking about this episode last night when I was making a few notes and I thought this is precisely the kind of thing you'd want to do if you had a time machine you know mm-hmm. to, to go back to famous people in time obviously but yeah. also in cases where they weren't famous in their time like Vincent certainly wasn't or yeah. maybe they were successful and sort of well-known, but nothing like the the success they have today, you know, when we shower big kudos on people from hundreds of years ago for things they did. You know, I don't think they were necessarily that famous back in their time. <laughs> They've sort of become more famous over time. And, Definitely. yeah, and to have a time machine and to go back to these people and say, hey, you know, you're, you're sort of famous in this city because you discovered something, um, mm-hmm. but in the future, everyone knows about you and everyone types into Wikipedia your name and they know all about you and they think you're a genius. And Wouldn't you just love to say that to some people?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, I guess, yes. And you've said this before, I, I love how I think Doctor Who should do it more often. They went back and actually, an actual historical figure for us, um, let us... Because I... I I don't know, Doctor Who should be more about history. That's how it started off, and they've kind of forgotten about that. Um, I'm glad you picked this one for that reason. And, yes, I would love to go back in time and tell a historical figure how important they are. (laughs) Be a part of that, yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, you've yeah. touched on something interesting there, the, the the fact that Doctor Who did begin with a lot of historicals, it was the, the yeah. meaning of the show to, to teach kids history.
2: Yeah, it had so much potential.
0: And now we have, like, pseudo-historicals, where yeah. they're back in time, they meet real historical people, but there's That's always true. some sort of alien menace at the same time.
3: Right, yeah, yeah.
0: I don't understand why they couldn't do a pure historical. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing which I, I think the audience is smart enough to understand. And it's the kind of thing which I think would be shocking enough because they just don't do it anymore to, to have a purely historical kind of thing and have a baddie who is just a bad guy from back in time and not like an alien in disguise or under the possession of, you know, a mystical force or something.
2: Yeah, that would be so interesting. Refreshing as well.
0: mm. But this episode, I mean, if you haven't had your emotional strings given a good yank by the end, I, I don't think you're human, you know.
2: It's... No, no. If you don't cry, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. You I need think... to have some more contact with the Doctor and he'll fix you up. <laughs> Watch some more Doctor Who. You haven't watched enough yet. <laughs>
0: And and I know in saying that, and when I watch the episode and, and at the end where Vincent's looking around the, the gallery at everyone marvelling at his paintings, yeah. I, I know it's reaching out and it's tugging on the heartstrings going, ha ha, I'm going to make you cry now. And, yeah. and you almost don't want to because you know that's what it's trying to do. Like in a movie where the, the music will swell in a particular way and you can feel it rising up inside you and you're like, oh no, don't do this to me.
2: Yeah, the music is just mocking you. <laughs>
0: that's that's exactly right. And uh, <laughs> But I, I can't not like it. It's just great, this episode. Fantastic.
2: Yeah. The actor they got for um, Vincent I think has a big part to do with it. Yeah, um, I, I'm sorry, I don't know his name but he's an excellent actor. At one point, I knew his name. I have a bad name remembrance issue thing going on in my brain at the moment. Oh,
0: you can send me off on a whole tangent here with regard to Doctor Who in particular. Um, When it comes to the classic era, I can remember guest stars, directors, producers, all sorts of stuff, (laughs) you know, from 40 years ago. And it's because when I was like 11, 12 years old, my mind was like a sponge and I would read these books and everything just went in there i can watch doctor who a week ago you know a modern story and and not be able to tell you who wrote it who directed it who the guest stars were and anything about it and it's it's weird i i think it's just an age thing i think you That's
2: just yeah an age thing well i i could you know offer some assistance for your defense your brain's defense maybe it's we're just totally bombarded with lots of information these days maybe it's not your age i mean there's a lot going around Oh, information all the time that we're just thrown with, so you can't blame your brain.
0: That, That's that, my excuse, too. <laughs> that is an excellent point, actually, in, in fandoms like Doctor Who and Star Wars. You yeah. know, you, th- you think back to the classic era of Doctor Who or, or Star Wars in the early 80s, and all I had to know was there were three Star Wars movies. That, yeah. that, that was it. And I could just watch them over and over and over, and I knew everything about Star Wars. And similarly with Doctor Who, every si- season at the time, there would be, say, six stories or something, uh, comprising 24, 26 episodes. Uh, and you could get to know them very well, you know. Um, but now, yes, there's the, the show on TV, there's the Big Finish audios, there's mm-hmm. books just coming out of our ears all the time, there's other audios through the BBC now. There's, you know, the fan-created stuff. They're, yeah,
2: they're... The, mini, the mini little shows. Remember, like, The Pond's Life, that stuff?
0: Yes, yep. Uh, they're... The, the volume of stuff is greater now. So, yeah, that actually might come into it, too, for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Okay. What else can we oh, Vincent and the Doctor? Oh. It was... I loved all the sunflowers. That was a beautiful. One. They uh, they used the artistic element very well. Mm. It was it was pleasing to the eye.
0: Yeah, uh, it's beautifully shot. I mean, kudos to the director, whoever they were. Obviously, yeah. I can't remember because it's a modern Doctor Who story. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, when they're lying in the in the field with their their heads together, looking up at the sky, I, ah. I can barely not cry looking at that scene.
2: Yeah, it's so like Vincent was such a troubled guy and it's just that pure moment of I don't know being I don't know kind of complete and in peace sort of that I don't know the doctor he kind of fixed him up. It was a beautiful moment. mm Mhm. And the the sky turning into the painting. That's what I'm talking about. The eye the eye candy was just so pretty.
0: Yeah. And, and underpinning it is the tragedy, though, because you're watching it and thinking, yes, the doctor is helping right. him in some way. Well, I think Amy might even be helping him more, because I think he's quite keen on on Amy. Uh, yeah, um, but you know that they're not going to change time; that Vincent is still going to, you know, end things. Um, and and that's tragic, because you're watching him have such a good time, and you're watching him be healed in some ways, but you know it's it's still not going to end well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It really tugs on the heartstrings. Mm. And the writers of Doctor Who knew it too. I think they brought him back for the Big Bang, the finale, for a reason. They, you really stuck in our hearts.
3: Yeah. Vincent
2: and the Doctor is an excellent episode. So I'm glad you picked that one because that would have been a shame if neither of us had picked it. Yeah. Yeah. A shame.
0: <laughs> Shall we move on?
2: Yeah. I think so.
0: Alright, and listeners can hear the second half of our chat towards the end of this episode. In the meantime, check out what the rest of the team have created this month.
5: A to Z of Doctor Who
1: Part 6 F Yes, this is Rob's computer speaking Now back to the show Faction
5: Paradox If your range of books need a great idea to galvanise it and become a significant recurring big bad you can do far worse than creating a time-travelling voodoo cult obsessed with creating paradoxes yeah, paradoxes? Paras-doc paradox The BBC 8th Doctor Books only really found their feet with the arrival of the faction, and it's often said by unbiased, dispassionate observers and literary critics that everything that came after Faction Paradox's final appearance was complete sh*t. Fandom. Never content with merely being fond rememberists of a kid's TV show, Doctor Who fandom is home to a lot of people who demonstrate their love for a liberal, progressive, tolerant, itinerant, meritocratic and inclusive hero and in his ever-evolving show by being small-minded ultra-conservatives who loathe change above all else. Takes all sorts. An entitled lot who feel... The show will only ever achieve its full potential when they are crowned showrunner. Fandom likes to spend its time rubbishing the efforts of the present showrunner and speculating about who might be appointed next, much like fans of the England football team, whose recent Anyone But Mark Gatiss campaign made headlines. Also in common with footy fans, those members of Who fandom selected for media interviews utterly encapsulate the worst qualities of Doctor Who fans. Red-faced, shrieking virgins in Tom Baker scarves their nan-knitted, spitting anti-Moffat invective, or carried along on waves of unimaginable fury that someone else has been made showrunner, or that some silly podcaster somewhere has had the temerity to call Doctor Who a children's show. Fenric. Nothing represents evil, evil since the dawn of time, like hiding in a flask for 4,000 years desperately plotting your next move in a board game. Fielding. Janet, Australian actress who lied about the minimum height requirements of airline stewardesses in order to secure a role in a TV show portraying an airline stewardess, I would argue, quite inaccurately. Whenever Tegan Javanka was asked a question or for help, she would always, often albeit grudgingly, engage. Most cabin crew I've ever flown with, however, seem instead to have been trained to avoid eye contact wherever possible, so had the pleasant, open-faced Fifth Doctor picked up virtually anyone else from Air Australia, or whatever they were called, to be his companion, they'd have spent their whole time as a TARDIS crewer resentfully doling out underwhelming food, or else sat on a fold-up chair down the back of the TARDIS, chewing Nicorette and pocketing all the little bottles of vodka. Fielding stepped aboard the TARDIS in Legopolis and left in Resurrection of the Daleks, slightly older, sadder, and finally freed of that nasty lavender uniform. The actress transitioned to uh, an agenting career after Doctor Who and is remembered as a torchbearer for feminism. Fielding also had cracking legs. Five to Doomsday. A big finished prequel series to the fifth Doctor Story 4 to Doomsday set aboard the and spaceship the day before the TARDIS arrives. Eight box sets are available already, starring Nick Briggs as virtually everyone, and Sherlock Holmes. FROBISHER Some people think Who lost its way on TV in the 1980s, with things like Bonnie Langford and The Trial of a Time Lord cited as being evidence of silly ideas being allowed to dominate. But these people seemed less exercised by the comic strip in DWM, even though it featured the Sixth Doctor hanging around with a talking bloody penguin. Fraser era. The Ian. For some unfathomable reason, Fandom Outside the UK never ever discusses the Ian Fraser era of Doctor Who. It's almost as if they never heard about this period of the show and assume, I don't know, it just stopped production in 1989. Baffling. When Doctor Who returned for season 27 in 1990, it was all changed for the show as producer John Nathan turner left to work on his new idea, Monkey Tennis, which had unexpectedly been greenlit several months before production started on Who. A guy called Ian Fraser was moved into the big seat and began making sweeping changes to the show's future. Season uh, 27 picked up where season 26 had left off, but the first story, The Murder Farm, saw the death of the popular character Ace, who drowned in a huge industrial Silo full of animal poo. The second story, The Mad Woman in the Safe, also saw the departure of Sylvester McCoy's doctor, who regenerated as a consequence of losing his mind this time rather than suffering any physical injury. Uh, Into the role as a more dynamic man of action doctor came John Nettles, popularised in the recently concluded detective show Bergerac, and Kim Thompson as the new companion, Rain. Story 3, the festival of horror, pushed the show to new levels of psychological horror and unpleasantness, and earned the show several raps to the knuckle by the House of Commons, who had all gathered especially to discuss the show's recent direction. Um, but because it was the John Major government, they were totally split on uh, not just Europe, but who their favorite doctor was, and so they were unable to uh, shepherd any effective legislation through the House. The season concluded with the four-part story Master of the House, which saw the renegade Time Lord running an illegal drinking den in revolutionary Paris. Controversial for many reasons, such as the songs and the casting of Kevin Waitley as an affable Geordie master who had renounced evil in pursuit of fresh ambitions in the food and beverage sector, the story split fandom down the middle, just as the singing and general running about split the trousers of portly prydonian john nettles on more than one occasion as june hudson famously used to recount all the time viewing figures for the series were up on those of season 26 and the show seemed to have found a new direction a new lease of life and a new sense of purpose so in 1991 the bbc shit it asking fans never to mention it to fans from other countries since doctor who had all got rather embarrassing Frontios. Mark Strickson's spittle-soaked, over-the-top histrionic meltdown over the Tractators has somehow become the de facto tone for discussing politics on Twitter. My own feelings, for example, about Theresa May are best summed up by a gif of Turlow with wee seeping through his trousers at the thought of poorly realised plastic man-sized woodlice. Fry, Stephen This A to Z entry was revealed and pretty much confirmed at the time, um, but sadly no script was ever written, and in the end, it didn't happen. Fury from the Deep. Not the only Doctor Who story to sound like a euphemism for a horrific body disease. See also Inferno, The Edge of Destruction, The Beast Below, and Uh, uh, The Stones of Blood.
1: uh, Ow!
6: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Letter Lords, with me, Bob Fleming, from the Prog to Who
4: podcast. And me, Jim Cameron, from the Crinoid podcast. And on this month's episode, we're going to be talking about nothing.
6: Because, <laughs> 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 unfortunately, Doctor E magazine edition 501 has given us nothing to talk about in the in the newsletters, or the, the readers' letters, unfortunately, is it, Jim? Not a sausage. No, unless you want us to applaud about the uh, 500th edition of the magazine, which was fabulous, but we... Mm. We went about. We talked about it last time, didn't we? So
4: we did. Yes.
6: Uh, or you want to talk about a Doctor Who thing wedding, which we don't really want to talk about. That. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, what do you think of doing a feature like that? I know it's a bit quirky and different, but isn't it a bit like I don't know Readers Digest or OK Magazine or something? I don't. I didn't really bother with that article.
4: Yeah, I haven't read it. I didn't feel quite worthy of uh, the magazine. <laughs> worthy. <think. laughs> OK what... magazine, I think, might be more.
6: Yeah, uh, Absolutely. So,
4: as as there's nothing to talk about in the letters, we're going to talk about other stuff, aren't we, Jim? We are. Well, should we start with a bit of news? Yeah, why not? I mean, it isn't probably really news, but let's start with a rumour, shall we? Mm. There is a rumour that uh, Matt Smith has been spotted in Cardiff. And, <sighs> of, and, of course, everyone has jumped to the conclusion that... Um, <laughs> Capaldi's doctor will degenerate back into uh, oh. Matt Smith. Uh,
6: do you think this is likely, Bob? Um, no, Jim. I think it's. I think it's the the mirror spouting nonsense as normal. <laughs> I, I think it must be a nightmare being an actor from you know being previously in Doctor Who going to Cardiff at any given point because <laughs> you're immediately immediately going to be rumored to be in it again. And I don't. Yeah. I couldn't. I can't. See, well, it's obviously Moffat, Moffat sort of finale season potentially. Matt Smith could show his face in a scene or something like possibly Mm. because it was it's his doctor, isn't it? That'd be fine, but anything beyond that, I think it stretches the imagination a little too far, Jim.
4: Well, there's any number of reasons he could be in in Cardiff. He might be visiting old friends, and he lived there for quite a while, didn't he? He He did did, live there for a while while on the programme. It's quite possible you might, as you say, he might do a little cameo. I mean, we don't know anything about the next series really, but it's kind of hinting at a kind of Moffat's greatest hits sort of victory lap. Yeah, Ending for him, so he could well turn up somewhere in that. Yeah, of course. Which would be fine. The chances of uh, one uh, doctor degenerating back into the previous one just seems absolutely, well, A, ludicrous, and B, extremely unlikely.
6: Yeah, however, if you said that he's going to devolve back into Paul McGann, that's a different <laughs> kettle of fish altogether. I'd, I'd go with that.
4: <laughs> uh, yes, you've mentioned that a couple of times, haven't you, sir? The, uh, way, the way forward. Yeah, it's a good job. I'm not sure
6: when I, everyone would hate me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't care. But yeah, it'd be, I mean, it'd be nice if he did a, did a cameo. Mm. I'm looking forward to if it is a bit of um, the best of Moffat, because he's had a fantastic tenure. It's mm. been a very long tenure as well. Uh, he's, he's done a lot of Doctor Who. I mean, it's one thing being... A, you know, going back to the classic series, it's one thing being a producer on the show for a while mm. and then you had the help of a script editor. So it's kind of like two of you doing the work, wasn't it? And obviously the yeah. production team or whatever. But it's really one man responsible for writing, you know, he- heading up the show. It's a massive task in it, really. I-, I do take my hat off to Moffat.
4: Yeah, and uh, I take my half to RTD before no, him as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really hard task, and I think um, Christian was probably aware of that, and you know, the very best of luck to him, because it's yeah. not only is it extremely difficult, it's something of a poison chalice as well, if you take into account everything that fans say. Ah, and, of course, there'll always be support, but there will always be people uh, moaning, won't they? Yeah. Not, not liking what you do, <laughs> but, of course, um, you yeah, know, the enormous... Uh, Viewing figures are what counts. These people, not what a few thousand Who fans
6: think. No, when you said when you said Who fans morning, I, just, I rolled my eyes as if I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I do do. Uh, I mean, I'm quite. I think I'm more more on the positive side of, of being a Who fan. But we all do like a little mourn. But yeah, I mean, at end of the day, it's been absolutely fabulous. He's he's done some brilliant stories, not mm. just not just in his own sort of lead tenure, but he's, he's done some fantastic stuff. The best stories and the T Davies as well. So yeah, yeah, he's been an absolute key figure in bringing back Doctor Who.
4: Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he deserves a victory lap if that's what this is going to be. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be some interesting stories in the in amongst the. Uh, yeah, not self-congratulations, but, you know, um, putting a full stop on his era, I suppose.
6: Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. Also, Star Trek's coming out in January, new series of Star Trek.
4: On mm. Netflix, I believe.
6: Yeah, nothing to do with Doctor Who, so apologies, Hoovians. <laughs> I am a bit of a Trekkie too, so I'm really excited about that whole new, brand new Star Trek. It should mm. be pretty goddamn good. I'm excited about that. So a lot of awesome television to look forward to next year, but I'm not going to wish my life away, Jim.
4: No. Well, let's talk about something else for now, then. Yeah, the last edition of Doctor uh, Magazine was very Tom Baker centric, wasn't
6: it? <laughs> it was Tom Baker magazine, wasn't it? it <laughs> was, Pretty much. It? Which isn't a bad thing. It's, I mean, he's you're uh, talking longevity; he's the longest running Doctor, and he's the you know he's the he's the Doctor for a lot of people, and he's a fascinating human being.
4: Yeah, and the elder, older surviving Doctor, of course, yeah. as well. Um, yeah, a, a fascinating man to be interviewed and. To, he is interviewed at extreme length. This. I mean, some of its existing interviews that have been stuff that hadn't been included in those interviews before yeah. on publication has been put back in. Um, so there's a, a, a huge an essentially it's kind of a seven part interview, something like that with him. Yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating. I haven't read it all yet, but, um, you know, it's, it's well worth having if you've got any interest in, in Tom Baker you know, as a doctor and as a man. Yeah, Uh, because incredible insight into into the man. He's 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 a he's
6: everything. He's like magical. He's wicked. He's so clever, funny. He's just he's just. There's no one else like Tom Baker, and there will be no one else like Tom Baker after him. He's just a unique individual. There's he no one. Is. There's no one that speaks like him. There's no one that makes his little naughty stories that he just generally <laughs> makes up. He don't know if he's lying or if he's not lying, and it's just it's such a, a beauty to read. And especially the interviews they've, they've already published at the basically it's, it's just Noah's Bad Baker. So all the stuff yeah. he took out previously is the effing and the jeffing, and it's all in there. Yeah. And it's the way he uses the English language is just it's something yeah. to behold. It's just fa- absolutely fantastic.
4: Well, it is absolutely brilliant. And if anyone was born to play Doctor oh, Who, it's, it was him, surely. Absolutely. He's odd. And he's a
6: quintessentially eccentric Englishman. Mm, exactly. Uh, and that's why it's, he's perfect for the for the role of Doctor Who. He's just And he's got the look, the crazy eyes, you know, he's, he's just got everything. And that's why he's regarded as, you
4: know, the number one Doctor Who. Yeah, for for many, for people of a certain age, certainly. I mean, I guess Tennant is, is that for a lot of other people, yeah. but...
6: Well, did, did, you, did you grow up on uh, Tom Berker?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm afraid to say old enough to remember Pertwee as it was airing. Yeah, the tail end of Pertwee. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Some of my earliest TV memories because, you know, it was something I, I liked a lot even then. You know, it kind of sticks, you know, whereas perhaps other stuff that I was sitting in front of back in the uh, early 70s didn't yeah. stick. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's such a, it was such a weird programme that it was compelling viewing and it was just the weirdest thing on telly. So, you know, I was was hooked and I remember the Pertwee era being extremely weird and you never knew what was going to happen next. And then, of course, all that's happening around a fairly straight interpretation of the Doctor. Mm. But then, of course, Tom Baker appears and I remember distinctly Uh, One of my um, friend's mums knew that I was into Doctor Who, and she asked me what I thought of the new Doctor after the first episode of uh, Robot had aired. And I said, uh, I don't like him, he's too silly. (laughs) (laughs) And I was genuinely shocked, because I was used to this sort of upright patrician figure that you got with with John Pert, who is really no-nonsense. You know, it's a little bit of charm here and there, and a little bit of silliness and things like the Time Warrior and stuff like that, you know, which, which is one of the ones I, I can vaguely yeah. remember. But I certainly didn't expect anything like what was happening in the first episode of Robot, with all those weird costume changes and the Doctor being absolutely bonkers. The wall. Yeah, and that toned down, of course, because as he bedded in mm-hmm. during the course of that story. But um, you know, what an extraordinary change to what we were used. I, to. I
6: imagine it was a bit of a shock, like at the time, without a <laughs> doubt. But but I mean I mean for, for me my first experience at Tom Baker would have been Revenge of the Cybermen when uh-huh. it came out on it was one of the first videos to come out, wasn't it? And horrendously expensive. It was about 15, 20 fifteen, twenty quid. I'm sure it was it yeah, was, it was huge, a yeah. silly amount of money. I mean, especially you know, in the in the eighties it wasn't it, late eighties I think it came out. Early nineties uh, something. Yeah, like that. Been, yeah. But yeah, it was it was a lot of money. I had to, I, I rented it from Granada. Do you remember Granada? The old, uh, oh, yeah, the old yeah. sort of video rental shop. I used to rent a telly and a, a video for like £4 a week or whatever. And I'd, I'd rent uh, Revenge of the Cybermen pretty much every Saturday uh, to, <laughs> to watch it. I genuinely did it as well. And then eventually it went into the, uh, the sale bin because they used to sell the videos after they were sort of, about mm-hmm. to wear out. Uh, and I bought it. I can't remember how much before. But that, that, that's my sort of main memory of, of Tom Baker. And the the only sort of footage I'd ever seen of him for for a lot of years Mm. uh, until the videos obviously obviously started coming out, and he was just magnificent. I just the thing is, because I I started growing up on Doctor Who from probably McCoy, really, you know, properly remembering it and watching it, Uh, maybe the tail end of Baker or whatever. So I've always been in a position where I've watched. I've never really had a Doctor take me quite out of the equation and obviously that yeah. cancelled it was done wasn't it so I never had, to, never had the continuity or was was there apart from the new series which is very different of a classic doctor particularly one like John Pertwee who's a massive striking character mm. and then bang you've got someone completely different I never had to go through that so I just find it quite fascinating because every doctor is my doctor because I've seen them all in yeah. Different, different times you know from when the different videos came out of Hartnell then you have, you'd have a Davidson and you know so it was always quite a mixed bunch and that's why I can only ever say that McCoy was my doctor you know from television but Baker I mean every single story that I remember coming out on video particularly his first three years of of being Doctor Who there's not a bad story in that run and there's nothing but in my opinion, classics, absolute and ultimate cl- classics. Mm. I think in one one season you've got Pyramids of Mars, Talons of Wen Cheyenne, Robots of Death, and it, every single one the the effort. There's no padding, particularly with Baker, in the first three three years. Mm. Like in Pertwee, you had a seven episode or a six episode, and my god, you know it it could <laughs> you felt yeah, every episode. He could drag and drag and drag. I mean, there was brilliance in there as well, but you did of have course, to go yeah. through go through it. Whereas with the the first three of Baker, there was nothing really wasted. And that's testament not just to Tom Baker playing Doctor Who, but the production team that came in in Hinchcliffe and Bob Holmes as well, in my opinion, probably the best writer of Doctor Who we've ever had. And it was a team that... Because I know when I read Tom Baker interviews, he he loved Philip Hinchcliffe. He loved him. And I think that's, that's what I've always said about production teams and the actor playing doctor who there's got to be this respect and there's got to be a passion for making it so they all had a, a big respect and understanding for each other all bob philip and and tom and there was that that there and when philip went graham williams came in bless him tom baker had no respect for him you know he a genuinely lovely man graham williams but he had no respect for him and that's when the show went awry for example when Eric Saywood was producing some fantastic stuff with Davidson and J&T, and as soon as Colin Baker came on board, that, that harmony was lost between the three of them because he didn't want Colin Baker, and it was a detriment to the show, which I think it was when Graham Williams, not his fault, took over because there wasn't that respect from the actor. Or, you know, the, that that triumphant, that, that harmony for everyone working towards making Bulletin Doctor Who was lost, you know, mm-hmm. which was sad because there was some super Doctor Who
4: Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think you can um, sort of compartmentalise the Tom Baker era into three yeah. s- separate compartments, can't you? Separated by a producer, really, because you can see you've got the Hinchcliffe era where, you know, those kind of horror film, not parodies as such, but... Yeah. Yeah, affectionate sort of tributes to the to these horror films yeah. and, and some classic sci-fi films as well, if you think of Planet of Evil and Forbidden Planet, you know, there's quite a lot of parallels there as well. But exactly, it was yeah. the kind of reasoning behind it, the drive behind it was to scare the kids, wasn't it? That's what Robert Holmes always always said, you know, scare the kiddies. So um I certainly got into Doctor Who because it was scary. And it was a lot more it was it took its although it had a sillier
6: doctor mm. to a degree, it took itself a lot more seriously. With the darkness on uh, the tone of adventures, like Genesis is a a very dark story. Extremely, yeah. But uh, but I know we say Tom Baker's silly. Tom Baker was silly-ish in Robot. Mm. But as soon as he got into it, he was quite a serious Capaldi-esque, with a bit more fun doctor. Yeah. For the first three years. And he only got really silly when his reins got taken off or Hinchcliffe left, really.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he was the longest serving person on the programme by then because, you know, obviously Liz Sladen had left and uh, actually by, um, you know, fairly early on in the Williams era, even Louise Jamieson left, didn't she? So he, in his own opinion and perhaps in the opinion of many others, was the show at that stage. And he's a huge personality, Tom Baker, and um, he has a lot, of, he had a lot of ideas that aren 't going to be workable. I mean a lot of the little bits of business and stuff he worked out are great you know and they, they do add to the program but being a, a quite a strange person, he comes up with <laughs> quite a lot <laughs> of strange ideas and they have to be kind of fended off by a, you know, a strong producer and I guess strong directors on each individual story and There were a number of directors that he sort of browbeat as mm. well, as well as uh, Graham Williams in the producer 's chair so if he wanted to put a stupid gag in or a you know particularly silly bit of business, then more than not it, it would seem to get in. Well, I think I think I think
6: with particularly the directors, just from reading a bit of the interview, going back when he was becoming an actor, because he didn't become an actor until quite late on mid twenties after he'd been a monk and joined yeah. the army I and joined the merchant navy, which in itself is a, is, a, is fascinating really, mm. and then got into acting. He got bullied a lot a lot by directors directors in theater were horrible horrible bullies and that was something i think he was possibly rebelling against because he had the power after four or five years as being doctor who and and being the most successful and and biggest doctor to that point Mm -hmm. as well
4: yeah he's uh, maybe there's a bit of getting his own back (laughs) at that point certainly and (laughs) graham was bore the brunt of that but, yeah, as a consequence, um, there's some great stories in there. Some of the stories are fairly serious. I mean, the story for Horns of Nymon is, is a pretty dark story. But mm. uh, when you've got the likes of, you know, Tom Baker at his silliest and then people like Graham Crowden coming in as guest actors and they're trying <laughs> to out-silly each other, you know, it's. I personally don't think it's, it's good for the show. I mean, a lot of people like that story because it's so silly and it's kind of fun as, as a result, but... Um certainly at the time I could see the difference even though I was only young, I could see that the show wasn't as good as it used to be, at least in my in my yeah. opinion. But um of course Jonathan Turner comes in and reigns all that back in again.
6: Which I quite like. I like the final season of Tom Baker. Mm. I don't like the sort of the three in the middle under Williams, I'm not a massive fan.
4: No me, not, really, not really.
6: But I do really like and it's quite controversial because not many people do I, I really enjoy the final season of Berker there's a very deep and me- melancholy sort of serious edge to him and he's a, and he looks
4: older obviously because he is and he was quite ill actually during the course of that yeah. uh, filming that season wasn't he and that is obvious on screen he looks a lot older than when he started and a lot older than the previous year to be
6: honest he does yeah and it it's, it's, it definitely has the feel of uh, he's coming towards the end yeah you know, and it 's quite I like it being taking itself seriously again, and I like some of the clever ideas that are put in there, yeah, I really enjoy that final se- season of Berker. I love it in fact, I love Legopolis i don 't get it, <laughs> but, but I, you know I get a bit of it but i do I do really enjoy that. I think the regeneration's fantastically clever mm-hmm. uh, again it, i couldn 't tell you what it's about. But it was very different, you know, at the time and things like that. And it looked a lot better as well. Although it's quite garishly 80s to a degree. Yeah. It looked a lot better than it had done for three
4: years. Well, I think one of the, um, John o. Turner's skills, I suppose he had two really. One was uh, publicity. He was very good at getting column inches about Doctor Who. Yeah. And, the, and the other is he's very good with, um, you know, the purse strings. Yeah. It was one of those eras where every pound he spent on the, on the show was on screen. And, you know, that was good because um, it, things are looking really tatty by, awful. you know, season 17 in particular, but, you know, the couple of seasons prior to that, really. I mean, back in season 15, you had uh, Underworld, which to this date still looks like the cheapest <laughs> thing Dog 2 has ever done. It's awful. Most of it's on CSO,
6: yeah. It's not a good story, really, either. It's quite a generic sort of sci-fi is bit, story, yeah. is it? It's not the best. But yeah, I'm a big fan of. What, what? What? How do you feel about the final season of Doctor Who? Of Tom Baker, Doctor Who?
4: Well, I you know, I much prefer it to season sixteen and seventeen. Yeah. It's. Uh, I don't think he, he's quite at his best, in my opinion, Tom Baker. But he's certainly a lot better than he was in the previous three seasons. Yeah, um, he still has. Um, a bit of a laugh there are still laughs to be had despite what people say about the Chris Bidmead era you know, Chris Bidmead was a script editor at the time yeah it isn't completely dour throughout that um season there are laughs to be had but yeah. but Tom Baker isn't like mugging to the camera and all that stuff that tended to creep in, in in previous seasons and um I think it works very well I mean you can tell that Tom Baker the man isn't um Enjoying himself quite so much and perhaps isn't relishing being reined in so much as he was before. But I think the character is still making quite a few quips. And it's more back to the kind of balance he had in the first three series of Tom Baker where, you know, terrible things are happening and he'd he'd be very grave for a a lot of the time. Mm. But he'd still make sort of wry remarks here and there, sometimes quite silly, but a lot of the time just sort of witty. Yeah. And I think that is uh, the balance that works best in Doc Two for me, at least. Yeah, and no, I
6: agree. I mean, the, the East, the, uh, this was the biggest uh, shocking tone, I think, for me. So I know when you were obviously saying about Pertwee becoming Baker, I can appreciate that was a shock as a kid. <laughs> but going back, going from
4: Series 17 to Series 18, that, that it was like a whole new show it was, yeah, it looked completely different. I mean, the new yeah. Starfield um, title sequence and the new music and everything just looked so much more glossy and expensive, mm. didn't it? It did, and that was one thing, obviously, from getting the videos, you know, you'd see a
6: break, you'd see... And then one of I think, was it Megloss or The Leisure Hive possibly that first came out of these lot? I can't remember. It's well, Let's, let's
4: it was the first of the season, wasn't it? I, I think that one probably came out first on, on video. video, I can't remember yeah. to be honest.
6: I remember thinking, wow, this mm. is stunning. And everyone I got, you know, of Track, and the Gopalus, Keeper Tracking, the e-space trilogy as well is a fantastic little idea. I love it's it. It's great, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's just really clever. And there's a, there's a lot of this si- science and that in it. Yeah. So rather than the horror element, which Hinchcliffe and Holmes brought to it, which was brilliant, this whole new thing of science and taking itself seriously again mm. was great. Really pretty sort of. Star Trek The Next Generation, which Star Trek is, particularly Next Generation and stuff, is renowned for that science element of what it does in the show. Mm. And that's what I like about it as well, because I like Star Trek. I mentioned it before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I like I like the series. Does it. I like what Christopher H. me brought to it at that time. Mm. Um Yeah, i have got a lot of time for last, last series of Baker and a lot of time for Tom Baker.
4: Hmm. Yeah, he's a terrific Doctor. I mean, of course, we we next see the character in The Five Doctors, don't we, which is... From Shada. Yeah, his appearances are lifted from the bits of uh, you know outdoor filming and stuff they did for Shada, which, of course, was never shown yeah. on TV. And that's a great way of using that footage and of including stuff of you know the fourth dot that we hadn't seen before. But what do you make of Tom Baker's decision to not join in properly into um, the
6: five doctors I, I i do agree with it and i think in hindsight i mean I, I, we don't know because we never saw tom baker properly in the five doctors mm. but i think that the five doctors particularly at the time um, and probably even now obviously was was better for not having a load of tom mm. because it was very soon after he'd been a doctor for such a long time yeah yeah well, I think, you know, Davison was, I love Pete Davison as a doctor, but the contrast from Baker to Davison, who was, it, you know, people call him bland, whatever. I thought he was a fabulous Doctor Who. But to bring Tom Baker back, I think at that time, even though he wouldn't, he didn't want to come back, which is totally fair enough, mm. because I think he was probably still in the, sa- the same mindset of he was Doctor Who still probably for a long time. I think when you play, you, you, a part like that consumes you. And I think there's still a part of him that does think he is still Doctor Who. You know what I mean? Because he brought a lot of himself to the character.
4: Well, quite, yeah.
6: The, the story, because I you know, Terence Sticks, he had to write something, you know, without Tom Baker. And I always think a writer of his brilliance, because he's such a fantastic storyteller, Terence Sticks. Mm. Or making a very understandable story. Yeah. For me, it benefited f- from it. And also, we got to see a bit of Shadow. I mean, when, I, when it came out, I didn't have a clue I thought Tom Baker was actually in it. Mm hmm. You know, when I, and it wasn't for ages, and so I think my cousin told me. He said, "Oh, that's that's from Sharda, the one that wasn't made." Right. I was like, "All right," I had no idea. <laughs> so it, you know, it was
4: it, it was cool to see a bit of Sharda as well. Yeah, it fits in seamlessly, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. With I think it's entirely understandable why Tom Baker didn't want to get involved, and at in the same time, it was probably good that he didn't because I think with any of these multi doctor stories, the incumbent doctor has to lead the thing. Yeah, and Davison does in this, doesn't he? And, and Absolutely, the other yeah. the other doctors work round him, and that's how it should be. Uh, I can't imagine Tom Baker allowing that to happen. <laughs> so it would have, yeah, I think the balance would have would have been wrecked had he been in it. But I think we get a kind of resolution to that with his appearance in uh, the Day of the Doctor.
6: Yeah, that that that, that was right, mm. right at the end. That was it was such a beautiful scene when he just popped up there. It was there yeah. was a lot, a lot of great moments around the fiftieth. Yeah, and I'd, Paul McGann was my highlight, but I think the second highlight was that little bit at the end, and it was typical Tom Baker. You didn't know. Yeah, is he the Doctor that he played, but in a different timeline? Is he? Is he actually just a career? Is it what you know? What is
4: he? Is a future incarnation where he used the old face again? So yeah, it works really well because um, yeah, he's the oldest surviving Doctor, and he wasn't in the last celebratory special. I don't know if Colin Baker was being tongue in cheek when he complained about his inclusion saying you know it's either no previous doctors or all of them or whether that was part of that five-ish doctors thing because there's a lot of strange stuff going on which uh, ended up being part of that thing which is brilliant but because you remember there was that bit when they were filming that sort of protest outside the bbc wasn't it yeah. Uh, in the in the five-ish doctors. And, you know, people saw that happening and thought, oh, blimey, is this real? Is this a real protest? So um, I don't know if Colin Baker's remarks <laughs> of that. Probably not, actually, but... He's very bitter, isn't he, Colin? But, uh, he can be, can't he? Yeah. but I don't see how anyone can begrudge Tom Baker's appearance in that, because, you know, no. t- to be fair, you have to catch him while you can. Yeah, N- absolutely. Now in, in, in his... Uh, elderly state and you know he he wasn't in the five doctors and he kind of well, yeah i mean he was but he didn't take an active part in it so i think it's fair enough to be honest
6: absolutely so we're all thumbs
4: up for tom baker eh? indeed have you re- uh, read his um autobiography
6: i watched the video i got a <laughs> right. video on who on earth is tom baker mm. and it's mental He's bonkers, isn't he? But it's brilliant. It's fascinating to watch. But the the problem was, I watched it when I was a kid, or quite young, and it probably washed over me a lot of it. I wish I still had it on some sort of format to watch it now, Mm. because I'd get a lot more from it, if you see what I mean. But as a kid, I was just like going, who is this crazy old man, and what is he talking about? But yeah, I think if I watched it, like I said, now, I would get a lot more from it than I would do as a kid, but I can't even remember how old I be when it came out. But So I've not read the book, but I watched the, the video.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure how closely related they are, but um, is that the video where um, he drives into a village, doesn't he, and he sees himself on the side of the road? Yes. And he, he asks him, "Where uh, do you know where Tom Baker lives? So that's exactly it, Tom, yeah. Baker, Tom Baker replies to himself, no, he's dead.
6: Yeah, uh, that is exactly <laughs> the one, yeah.
4: Very weird. Yeah, I remember that vaguely. I only saw it once. My my friend had it. I never bought it myself. But the the book is you know very much an autobiography, and how much of it is true, we'll probably exactly. never know. But uh, you were saying earlier about his mastery of the English language. Yeah, Tom Baker, and this is just uh, a showcase of just brilliant comic writing. Really. Loss. yeah and of course the fact that um, some of it probably did happen as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> makes it even more interesting so yeah that's uh, a great recommendation you can get it very cheap from eBay. i got it for about a hardback for about a quid the other day bloody hell uh, I, I, I think it's my original copy
6: i don't know why i've never read it but i think you should definitely have to remedy that situation
4: mm, it's well worth the read definitely yeah. well there we go
6: i think that's us jim isn't it
4: oh, i think so yeah
6: cool uh, it's been a pleasure, as always, to have a natter with you, even if the Doctor Who magazine wasn't very fruitful this month. Hopefully next month will be packed with letters that we can talk about.
4: Yeah, we had to freestyle a bit this week, but uh, yeah. hopefully
6: it's of some interest. I'm sure it will be, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed a with you, like always. Yeah, me too. And it's, uh, it's goodbye
4: from me. And it's goodbye from me, and we'll see you next month. Welcome to the
3: TARDIS Library, a place to talk comics novels, audios and more from the worlds of Doctor
7: Who. Hi, welcome to my seventh installment in the Doctor Who library. like previous months I'm going to be looking at a couple of Doctor Who comic books published by Titan. This time it's the 12th Doctor issue 2.6 and 4th Doctor number 4. Just a quick spoiler warning though as I will be talking about the plots of the issues in question Although I won't reveal too much about the cliffhangers, if I can help it. Let's dive straight in then, and start with part one of a new storyline for Peter Capaldi's Doctor. It's worth mentioning that we're now in the post-series 9 continuity. So Clara's gone, at last, and the Doctor's travelling on his own. It's also all changed on the creator front, as George Manning's back as writer, and Rachel Stott is taking a well-deserved breather. Instead, we have Mariano LaCaustra on our duties. Don't know whether I've pronounced that right or not. Mariano's No Stranger to Twelfth Doctor Comics. In fact, he seems to be George Mann's go-to guy when George writes a series. However, it's the first time I've come across his work since I started recording these reviews. So let's see how he does. The Doctor's visiting The Twist, a giant inhabited Mobius strip in space. He seems to be there to indulge this incarnation's fascination with punk rock, as that's where we first encounter him wearing his hoodie and rocking out in the depths of the young crowd. After the gig, he works his way backstage and meets Hattie, the bass player. Although he seems to be admiring her guitar, he's actually there to watch as a harassed man runs past, swiftly followed by a troop of armoured policemen in black. And as the Doctor gives chase, he's still got hold of Hattie's instrument, so she has no choice but to follow on behind. Using a different route, the Doctor gets to the man named Jacob first, and pulls him into hiding. It turns out that Jakob's been falsely accused of the murder of one of his friends, a local counsellor, Idra Panatar. Taking the Doctor and Hattie to the scene of the crime, he explains that he believes it really to be the work of vicious red-furred creatures that hide in the dark places of the colony, and that the authorities are trying to cover up their existence, hence why he's being framed. Using his new sonic screwdriver, the Doctor uncovers a secret room where Idra was collecting evidence about monsters, there's definitely a conspiracy of some kind going on and the Doctor's going to find out what it is. Intending to track the creatures, the trio head for the power park where artificial trees provide electricity to the twist. Suddenly those nasty cops reappear. Dodging through the trees, the Doctor and his companions crouch down by some roots, only to be confronted by a huge beast with slavering teeth, sharp claws and a red, bushy tail. Okay so far this seems to be a fairly traditional tale of monsters in the dark, government cover-ups and possibly an oppressed second set of inhabitants of the twist. But what makes it stand out are the personalities of the people the Doctor meets. Hattie is feisty, but a little bewildered as she's caught up in the wake of the Time Lord's investigations. Jakob, meanwhile, is clearly frightened, but not enough to give up on solving his dear friend's murder. There's also something more to him. He seems to have one electronic eye. Whether that's just a design choice to make him seem more alien or part of the plot, only time will tell. Art-wise, I have to say, I'm pretty impressed with Marionella Claustra. There's a glowing, luminescent quality about his artwork that I really like. As if someone's shining a light through the back of the page. This may be down to the work of the colourist, Carlos Cabrera, of course. His character work is really varied and expressive, and he's Peter Capaldi's distinct features down pat. I'd love to see what his creature designs are like when we see more of them in Part 2, but it's in this issue, it's the double page spreads that his design sense really explodes off the page. There's a lovely image of the twist colony itself at the start, but the standout is where he uniquely illustrates a chase sequence. Not by using multiple panels, but with corner illustrations, coloured arrows and a spectacular aerial view of the city. It's very, very clever. It gives a sense of scale, a sense of pace, and keeps the plot moving in just one simple sequence. All in all, it's a solid start for this storyline, and hopefully it's going to go in an interesting direction. We'll see you next month. If there's one niggle, it's that yet again Titan have decided to spoil things by giving away the name of the new monsters in the next issue blurb at the back. That's what the story's meant to be for. It's really starting to annoy me now. Sorry, pet hate. And it wouldn't be one of my reviews without a quick walk through the varying covers. There are actually five this month. I'll skip past the fairly bland Will Brooks photo cover and the standard pose from young justice artist Todd Nauck. Who knows if I pronounced that right. We do get an absolutely lovely shot of a Doctor leaping in space as he plays an alien looking guitar. This is from artist Steve Pugh, probably most well known for Animal Man, and more recently the DC Comics reinvention of the Flintstones. Is it a tribute to Pinsch? Possibly. Summer Myers does another album cover homage. This time it's the classic Hot Locks by the Rolling Stones. Instead of Mick, Keith and the band, we get the Doctor, Clara, Missy, a Cyberman and a nude. I have to say it's pretty darn good. My top praise this month goes to another image from Robert Hack, who I raved about in my review of the Fourth Doctor comic last month. It's not moving very far from his wheelhouse a spooky-looking house on an alien moon with his usual orange-based colour palette. No. Top marks go to Robert for making the Doctor himself look absolutely bloody terrifying as he strides towards the viewer with a furious look on his face. This is not a time lord I'd mess with. Right. On to the second comic in the month. And it's part four of Gaze of the Medusa, starring Tom Baker's fourth Doctor. All the regulars are here. Writers Gordon Rennie and Emma Beebe, Artist Brian Williamson, all present and correct. Last time, we left the Doctor and Athena using the Lamp of Kronos to get back to 500 BC. They're trying to rescue Sarah Jane, who's now a petrified statue, and the Professor, who isn't, but is about as useful as one. We get some lovely banter between the pair as the Doctor chatters on about the invention of ice cream and hundreds of years to go before you've got anywhere to put a chocolate flake. Athena's interested in the Battle of Marathon. But I want to hear more about the great and terrible beast emperor of the third crimson collective. That one practically writes itself. The doctor knows that the caves they are in are a prison for a creature known as a Medusa, an alien parasite that leeches the life energy from its prey. Those are not statues scattered around. Every victim's quantum locked, frozen in a single moment in time so that the Medusa can feast on them over centuries. It's a hideous fate, accompanied by some stunning panels from Brian Williamson. Maybe just a tad too much green there, though. Of course, no mention of quantum locking could go past without bringing up the weeping angels. So we get a clumsy aside from the doctor before Athena discovers her father staggering through the rubble. He'd escaped the Medusa after his gaze transformed Sarah Jane, but slowly he's been turned to stone, the monster's taunts echoing after him as he warned of the never-ending caves. Learning of Sarah Jane's fate, and that she saw herself in stone form in the hall of Lady Carstairs' mansion, the Doctor vows to rescue her. Meanwhile, back in Victorian London, the evil Lady Carstairs discovers the Doctor and the thing gone, and ventures into the TARDIS. She realises that the Doctor had far more power than she thought, so she and her Scryclops henchmen step into the portal after him. Discovering Sarah Jane's transformed body, the Doctor talks fondly to her, knowing that right now he can't do anything, She's a fixed point in time and has to stay a statue for two and a half thousand years until the 19th century. Confronting the Medusa, the Doctor reveals himself to be a Time Lord and that he knows the monster is trapped in 500 BC despite everyone else being able to get in. Athena and her father are faced with Lady Carstairs and a rampaging painting Skryklops, and the failing Professor sacrifices himself to let Athena escape. Catching up with the Doctor who's still evading the Medusa's gaze thanks to his trusty Sonic, the pair flee through the caves, only to be surrounded by a green glow, which the Doctor identifies as a transmat beam. They rematerialize in front of Oh, come on. You didn't think I'd give that away, did you? That big twist is the saving grace of the issue, which, to be honest, is a bit of a runaround to get all the players into the place for the final episode. It looks like Sarah Jane's going to be sidelined for most of this miniseries as an ornament, which is a real shame. Lady Carstairs also seems to be becoming redundant, more plot-device than antagonist. It's a shame the Professor's gone, but I've made no secret of the fact that I never warmed him as a character. He does get to go out on a go-high, though, by giving Athena his blessing on her relationship with her young military man, and in the end being a hero to save his daughter. On a positive note, the Medusa gets to be a lot more nasty in this issue, slithering around and tripping the Doctor up with a nice menacing voice. The design holds up pretty well, although the tail does seem to get longer and longer from panel to panel. In fact, Brian Williamson does a reasonably good job all round, although the obvious photo reference likenesses are creeping back in, and the less said about that single page of the Tyres console room the better. It's a bit too familiar. I won't miss the interminable cave backgrounds. Hopefully you will get something one in to draw next to ship. We've got one more comic to go, and I'm really intrigued where this is heading. Let's hope Gordon and Emma can pull off an interesting conclusion. So what else do we get with this comic? Well, there are no less than six covers. The usual photo montage from Will Brooks, one by Todd Nauk again, which is miles better than his 12th Doctor cover from earlier. There's a close-up of The Medusa by Brian Williamson that's really quite hypnotic. And a Homegene theme one from Kelly Yates, who did work in the Prisons of Time maxi series from IDW. The fifth is a beautifully painted cover from veteran Mark Wheatley, one of my all-time favourite artists. Top of the poll, though, goes to the cover slash ad for Doctor Who Comics Day 2016, which is a loving Jack Kirby pastiche by Andrew Pepoy. It's aping Fantastic Four number 49 from 1966, which featured Galactus. But here we have the fourth Doctor, Sarah Jane and K-9 being menaced by a giant Cyberman. It's just wonderful. I'll happily have to get that hanging on my wall. Forget album covers, I want more King Kirby inspired work. The Doctor Who Comics Day thing doesn't end there though, as at the end of the issue there are two one-page teasers to this year's bi-weekly five-issue event, Supremacy of the Cyberman, it being their 50th anniversary and all. The prologues feature the 4th and 8th Doctors, and don't reveal much, except it looks like the series will be full of surprises. All five issues are written by George Mann and Kevin Scott, with by Alessandro Vitti, and Ivan Rodriguez. Issues 1 and 2 should be out now. Keep listening to future episodes of the podcast to see who gets to review the series. Time for me to go. See you next month. Bye! Uh, no,
0: I still haven't read that Gary Russell book. Tune in next month.
2: Hello! It's Lex. I'm here to review issue 2.11. This one's titled The Organ Grinder. It's a really interesting cover on this one that I have. It is by Dan Boltwood. The 11th Doctor has this red, ornately detailed tattoo over his right eye. It almost looks Mayori. And he's looking down at the ground, contemplative, but Also almost looking like Antonio Banderas on the cover of Desperado uh, before he's about to slaughter an entire village of innocent people, that kind of look. And that doesn't actually happen in the movie, but might actually happen soon in the comic. We'll see. But yeah, interesting cover. Only complaint I have is that it has nothing to do with the issue at all. I mean, the symbol on his eyes, definitely um, the exterminate symbol of the uh, Volatix Cabal. I'll get to them later. But other than that, the 11th Doctor doesn't even appear in this episode. Um, apart from Alice's like flashbacks, there is not a single moment of the 11th Doctor in this issue. Epsilon Doc doesn't appear either, by the way. So yeah, it, it just doesn't seem right for a comic cover to be so incongruous with what actually happens in the issue they cover. You know, it happens all the time, though. It's just this time I thought it was particularly kind of misleading. Okay, so first things first. The writer is Cy Spurrier. The artist is I.N.J. Coldbard. It's a new name. The colorist is Marcio Menace. Another new name. And letterer Richard Starkings. And comic craft's Jamie Betancourt. Okay, so the first thing we see in this issue is... The damage that has been done by the psychors if I hadn't mentioned them before, they are the gods of the people that the Doctor has allegedly mass murdered. Now it turns out these gods have a psychic ability to kill an entire army galaxies away. Uh, that's This is the first thing that happens in this issue. Uh, psychic balefire was the term the Doctor used. And the creepy Asian kid is is in this issue a lot. He talks a lot. I was about to say we figure out who he is, but still I I don't think we really do. He just talks a lot. He has a lot of lines. So he's slightly less creepy than the last issue. He really does appear to be the sidekick of the doctor, which is very surprising. Don't be fooled though. He's still a twisted little psychopath, basically. Um, The boy really enjoys killing. And paradoxes. <laughs> Practically the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me, inner Sheldon. So, yeah, this kid should not be trusted. It's a sadistic child who is probably most definitely not really a child. Oh, and it also turns out he's the master. Yeah, I know. What? He's the master. Personally, I'm not sure if I really believe it yet. Because he's just too supernaturally creepy. He's too creepy to be the Doctor's arch-nemesis. Especially with that black blob monster thing that happened last issue. In any case, whether or not I believe it, the War Doctor appears to really believe he is the Master, and they're on the same side. Moving on. Well, sort of moving on. There was one confusing thing... Uh, the child slash the master said he suggested that the war doctor should perhaps start priming another doomsday weapon. Sort of offhand muttering to himself, maybe. Um, But yeah, he said that. He mumbled to himself saying you should just prime another doomsday weapon. What's that referring to? Did they mess up? Did the writers mess up? I mean, how many doomsday weapons did the war doctor prime? It would make sense for the kid to be referring to the moment um, from the 50th anniversary. That would make sense. But that couldn't have happened before all this. So how would this kid even know about that? Or rather, the Master. How would the Master know about that? It hadn't happened yet. The War Doctor immediately regenerates after the 50th anniversary episode story. There's nothing left after that to happen with the War Doctor. So I'm pretty sure there wasn't... Another instance that the Doctor messed around with galaxy eaters, but at the same time, it couldn't have happened. That line was so odd. Unless it is possible the Asian kid knows the Doctor's future, which is actually awesome. So, like, he could have been casually referring to the future events as if they've already happened. I love time travelers. Okay, back to the comic. So, we're introduced to something... Very important and the root of all evil in terms of this year's storyline. The Volatix Cabal. That's what they're called. As far as I am aware, this is something that the comic has created. There is no reference to the actual television show. So yeah, these these guys are new. Um, You can only learn about them through the comic. Check it out, guys. Hint. Nudge. Wink. So these guys, the Volatix Cabal are one of those cult Dalek breeds, and they're bred, you know, for a certain purpose. To be more precise, this is a death cult, not just any cult, a death cult, Um, of course, because they're semi-Daleks. They're, this is a quote, narcissistic, eccentric, sadistic, and deliberately bred for disorder. And reviled by their own kind. Tolerated only for the talent that no pure Dalek could possess. Creativity. Yeah, so that's this is the Voletics Cabal. Important. I wanted to mention it to you people. And then on about like page seven, things get really weird. These Dalek things, they speak in a way that involves a lot of like, descriptions of taste and smell, but in a really grimy way. And as I said, just, things get really weird. My impression is that these Daleks are sort of like goblins. Um, the kind of goblin that wants to eat you and, or wants to eat you, but before it does, it wants to analyze and learn something about you first. I imagine goblins play with their food These Daleks are like goblins, and maybe I should read something of it so you guys can know. Alright, listen to these words. It. It is a curious thing to admire what one loathes. You are human, I think. And then it like goes, mmm, as in it's tasting something? And then it says, your genes taste of musk and music? Uh, Another one says, a race of... Verminous wonders and body hair. We applaud your high regard for insanity. And then another one says you are afraid. Ah, you are reluctant. I recognize the sentiment. And then another one says I have debased myself, how grotesquely I have wallowed in your literature. So these are Daleks Question mark. And then it goes on to talk about Alice in Wonderland. Get it? Alice. They have Alice, and they talk about Alice in Wonderland. That was pretty good. They really are the most bizarre version of Daleks you could possibly imagine. Each each of them seems to have, like, decorated itself. They're all very individual. So, one wears a bear skin, and the other has not just one Dalek eye. But nine. I think about nine. And then a couple of scrawny arms to go with them. I like the bearskin one the best. It also has seagulls on sticks mounted around its neck, and they just kind of wobble around while he walks. I imagine. I can't really see them wobbling, but they're on some flimsy sticks. Imagine. Oh, and it has a white fox sleeping on its shoulder. I'm pretty sure it's a dead fox, but it's there. Oh, oh and you can actually see the Dalek's These little octopuses, octopi, in little green tanks beneath their um, head parts. I really like these guys. They are wonderful, but completely bizarre. They're also kind of poetic. Alice starts to cry um, as they talk about dissecting her. Poor Alice. And one notices it, and it has this line. It's very poetic says, a teardrop hikes a crow's foot ridge. It boils with brine and dejection. Oh, help me, I will burst with beauty. I liked that. It also turns out that these guys think in a duodecimal system. I'm not sure if all Daleks think this way. You guys can message me if it turns out they do, but yeah. And I guess it's because Daleks have 12 tentacles? I did go to double check that fact, at least. Um, I I googled up some naked Dalek images and tried to count their tentacles. Um, I didn't really accomplish anything, because it's hard to count tentacles. But I looked it up on Wikipedia and stuff like that. And so yeah, from what I found out, from series 1 and onwards, the Khaled mutants, they had a single eye, more defined bodies, and 11 ropey tentacles. However, the mutant scene in City of the Daleks had 12 tentacles instead of the usual 11. And then there's Dalek Sek from Daleks in Manhattan, and he had 6 tentacles. And that's half of 12, and he's half human. So maybe they really do have 12, but it's not entirely, you know, clear how many tentacles Daleks are classically supposed to have. Just an offhand observation and topic to wonder about. Um, also, as a side note, do not ever Google the words naked and Dalek in the same search bar and press the button enter or return afterwards. Don't do that. That was way more Photoshop and, what was it they said, verminous wonder and body hair than a person should ever be exposed to in one sitting. That's all I'm saying. And okay, are you ready now for a new topic, but actually very old topic of mine? Because, once again, the writers have found a way to portray the Doctor in a way that makes me so angry. Yeah, this happens every issue though, doesn't it? This time though, they didn't just, you know, subliminally frame the Doctor in that, oh, I was planning this little time arrogant, sort of know-it-all personality they give him um this time they just outright called him the writers basically called him a manipulator outright they keep writing him off as a manipulator i don't understand the viewpoint of the comic book writers why do they view the doctor in this way the words this time are from the master slash creepy asian child Um, he says people are resources alice obifun he's talking to alice One cannot prevail in war unless one is pragmatic. He's explaining as to um, why the Master and the Doctor have teamed up for this war. So yeah, he's saying you have to be pragmatic. You have to be a little ruthless to get where you're going. Um, Alice says, I'm not like that. I just came here to, to find out what happened. Of course, in the background, they show a picture of her shooting Absalom doc earlier. So she continues, I don't use people. I'm not a manipulator. And the kid says, huh, then you really haven't been paying attention to your future friend over there. If you truly do know him at all, you can take it from me, child. He is a master of the art. Every single issue they do this, in some shape or form. The writers have just allowed a character to describe the doctor as the master, or a master, The word master is in bold. A master of the art. Basically, he just called the doctor a master and a manipulator at the same time without even saying the words. Well, he did say one word, but didn't actually say a master. Anyways, damn these comic book writers. I hate it when they do this so much. Yes, the doctor can be manipulative, of course, but that's not who he is. In the show, he never commits such petty levels of pointless manipulation just that that doesn't happen and this comic book creation the level of manipulation in the comic versus the television show it just doesn't compare it's so inaccurate i've been reviewing this comic now for 2 years and i can say they consistently do this they consistently color the character of the doctor in this really aggravating inaccurate shade of a manipulating arrogant and ignoble rake of a person. That's right, I said a rake. He's a rake. A dissolute individual. I did that without swearing. I hope you're impressed. Why do they do that? Why? I guess they must really see the doctor as a petty schemer. Sorry, did I say petty schemer? I meant to say master manipulator. They see him as a master. Okay, my tirade with the writers is over you can you can relax now. Overall, this was an excellent issue. It was so exciting to see the War Doctor, the young blonde version of the Squire, and of course insane goblin Daleks. I had a lot of fun reading it. It wasn't just me grumbling the whole time about how the Doctor was portrayed. I enjoyed it. It has a great twist in the end that involves psychic paper, And everything starts to clear up. An explanation starts to arise as to how the Doctor could commit genocide. And it actually makes some sense. It's really great. Okay, so this is the end of my issue 2.11 review. Thank you for listening. And I wouldn't mind someone giving me their point of view of how much of a manipulator they see the Doctor as. Like in the show. Or in another Doctor Who comic. I just hate grumbling about it all by myself. Message me on Twitter at LexJournus and alright. Talk to you all next month. Bye.
0: Alright, we're back. Lex and I are talking our favourite eleventh Doctor stories. What have you got for us next, Lex?
2: Um this is my final one. Um I'm now into season six. Is that okay?
0: I'm I'm in six also. I have the the episode I'd like to talk about. I also have a runner up. So, Ah, I don't know whether you want to do yours, and then we'll do my runner-up. Not that we should really talk about it, because it's only a runner-up.
2: Oh, I think we should. You can't just pick three episodes. (laughs) You mean four? Well, four, even. (laughs) Yes. A top ten, maybe, each of us would have been more appropriate. It's so different. There's so many good episodes. Okay. era. I, I'm okay. suitably chastened.
0: I'll, I'll mention my runner-up at the very, very end.
2: Good. <laughs> right. After um, you. Okay. that's funny that neither of us picked a Series 7 um, episode. because those were good, too. But anyways, I picked another tearjerker. A real sudser. Christmas Carol. No bingo. No bingo. Silence. Cricket. Cricket. <laughs> Um, or Jingle Bells. Let's go with the Jingle Bells. <laughs> this was such a good Christmas episode um, in terms, I guess, I I, um, I don't know. It made me cry, mm. so I won't do that. And also it was romantic. Yes. I guess I also went with that again. I don't know. Okay, I picked The Christmas Carol because, oh, it's an excellent Matt Smith episode just for that entrance of his first entrance in the episode, he comes down this chimney.
1: Blimey! Sorry, Christmas Eve on a rooftop, saw a chimney. My whole brain just went, "What the hell?"
2: Yes, Matt Smith. Uh, yeah, that the character Eleventh Doctor. That's just him. It was so perfect. So that's why um, number one, this episode, just for that entrance, I picked the Christmas Carol.
0: Can I jump in at this point and say Matt- it's my favorite of the Christmas episodes?
2: Yeah. 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 OK, good. It really is. It's such a well-written Christmas episode, really. And it, I think they made it special, not just because they and it's not difficult. It's not easy to do this. It's difficult. They used a really well-known uh, Christmas time story because mm-hmm. um, everybody's done that. Sure. But um, so that it takes some effort to make it special and they added like a darkness to it that most other episodes wouldn't have. So this was sort of like a sad, dark Christmas. Like I was thinking when watching it recently, that quote in the beginning of Kaz, we're talking the Scroo- um, Scrooge character. He says um, like halfway out of the dark, meaning Christmas, you're halfway out of the dark. Mm.
3: Uh,
2: that really resonated. I thought in, as in terms of the whole episode, the theme uh, not a Christmas feeling you usually get from stories they're not usually that dark and I don't know but I, I, it's really special
0: yeah I I when I watched this I was over the moon because the Christmas stories hadn't been entirely sitting right with me up until this one Um, yeah. and then I watched I thought this is perfect because they're taking this old story that you're right everyone does but yeah, they throw in the Doctor Who twist of, mm-hmm. you know, being shown th- different things through time travel, mm-hmm. and then you throw in that romance element with, um, yes. I yes. think, Catherine Jenkins as the actress. That name sticks in my head for some reason. Yeah, yeah, that's her. And, uh, and that song she sings at the end is, is just beautiful. incredible, <laughs> you know?
2: And it really resonated with me also because my mom is a choir director. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so... If you if you want to melt my heart, you just have to add in some coral pieces, and I'm I'm gone, I'm a puddle. <laughs> Listen, take that. note. I was numbed. It was just oh, I cried. I cried so much. It was so beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 fun scenes of them going through time to to marry Marilyn Monroe at one doctor, stage. Yeah,
2: yeah. the eleventh uh, Doctor marries, almost marries, did marry, uncertain. The 11th Doctor probably married Marilyn Monroe in this yeah. episode. <laughs> we actually saw the Doctor with an untied tie, mm-hmm. an untied bow tie, with a red stain of lipstick on his cheek. That actually happened.
0: <laughs> and and even, I think there's a scene where, do they have some snapshots from other adventures? It's a really quick way of showing that they've been to other places as well.
2: Frank Sinatra. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, not with the Casrin and um Abigail characters.
0: Yeah, those mm. were nice. Yeah, cuz I I want to say there's an Australian shot in there. I I oh. I almost think there's an opera house or a harbor bridge or, or
2: Yes, there is. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I was like, "Ah,
2: there we are." <laughs> <laughs> which which
0: which I do whenever uh, Australia is in Doctor Who, like even in um oh, what's Eccleston's penultimate story, um Bad Wolf. Uh, okay. And, um, the Daleks are attacking the world and the world starts melting, but you can see Australia <laughs> and I go, ah, oh, there we are.
2: We're melting, <laughs> but we made it. Yep. That episode was for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I get, I get funny when well, I see Australia in, in TV shows. Um, what else can we say about this? We mentioned the music, the, the Christmas oh, carol theme,
2: the beautiful fish floating around the clouds so cool
0: yeah wasn't that a concept
2: the big shark yeah that was quite a concept yes yeah being able to control the weather and then of course there is the big uh spaceship so it wasn't entirely unspacey they did manage to somehow make it spacey ish as well you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> a spacey christmas with yes. <laughs> it. <bizarre. Yes. laughs>
0: And, and there is another element to this episode Which makes me happy I'm going to say it But it probably won't make you happy when I say it What? And it will make people at home Question my Well, two of my three episode choices One of them you haven't heard yet Okay It's this Amy is barely in the episode
2: Oh, yeah Oh, that's <laughs> actually that, Yeah, I've, both of the ones that I've picked The last two Amy isn't in the episode I noticed that Yeah Funny, interesting, right? Hmm
0: <laughs> Because I'm not the biggest Amy fan, and yet I've picked Amy's choice. Yeah. And the episode you hear from me next you'll go, Oh, that's very Amy. Yet uh, yet I'm not into the character at all. And so I actually really like that she was stuck up on that ship.
2: Was, yeah. No, it's fun somehow the doctor, the eleventh doctor, really shines when he's alone, interacting with new characters. He really does.
3: Mm. Mm. He does.
2: Yeah. But you know, and you once asked me who my favorite companion was, and I said, um, I I should have said Amy Pond. She really is, I think, my favorite, and I I I don't think I was able to say it because she there's so many flaws in her character, how she never actually like she really doesn't return um, Rory's affection. It's it's so unequal, um, and I think that really bothers me. But otherwise, she's so crazy. I really do really like her as a companion. I just want to add that in there to clear my conscience. And I know you, she's you're not she's not your favorite, but I love Amy Pond. Well that's good. I know it is good. Now my conscience is cleared and I'm honest.
0: We we all have to have our favorites.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what were we just um yeah, you were just introducing maybe something else? Another pick of yours? Was that
0: what we were talking about? Well, we, we can move on to that. I was, I was only mentioning it because I'm saying how I don't like Amy, and yet two of my three choices are very Amy-centric.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. When
3: you are here, music is more your-
0: Wonder if people at home can guess what I'm going to pick.
2: Um, is it the um the girl who waits? Yes. Woo! I win. <laughs> what do I
0: win? <laughs> uh, uh, bragging rights. Um, let's move on to the girl who waited then. Yeah. Um, for me, for a show about time travel, the concept is often used really sparingly in Doctor Who. Like they use it to go to a place, but it's not the underlying theme of. What's happening, if that makes sense.
2: Say that again.
0: Doctor Who is about time travel. He's a time traveller. They use the TARDIS to go places in time, but the concept of time and manipulating time and things you can do with time aren't really a concept that's used that much in the show.
2: Oh, okay. You know... So let me refresh my memory because I haven't seen this one. I think it it bothered me so much that they were basically killing Amy Pond, um, <laughs> but I haven't been able to rewatch this one. Maybe so that's they, why I like it. Yeah, maybe that's why you like it on you. a subconscious level. <laughs> killer, <laughs> companion killer. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, yes. What do they do? They put her in another dimension, and she ages. And they're not able to get to her because of some kind of lock that has to do with time. Wait, what is Can you explain it to me? Give me a refresher on this episode.
0: It's been a while since I've seen it and you've probably explained it almost as well as I could. Okay. <laughs> they they end up at some place. Uh they step through a mirror? I recall yeah. there was a mirror, they were looking through a mirror, and Amy That's and Rory were together but then got separated. Rory ended up back with the doctor. And Mm -hmm. they were trying to get back to Amy They thought they got back to her in pretty good time But when they got back to her She was, what, 30 years older or something
2: Surprise!
0: Yeah Mm. And uh, Rory wasn't too keen, I think On having a 50-year-old So they left her behind And she died The end
2: (laughs) They killed her They killed that version
0: of Uh, her I'm being facetious about a story I really like Um You know, I mean, her survival in that place for such a long period of time was maybe drawing the bow a little too far. Like, I didn't understand where she was getting food, and she was largely wearing the same clothes. I was thinking, ooh, that'd be a bit whiffy by now.
2: Yeah, I thought that too. (laughs) But somehow she's very innovative and so very not innovative at the same time. Yeah, can't find another pair of clothes.
0: And she becomes awesome with a samurai sword, which is yeah. you know, pure fan service. But it, it was a great scene where she's she's running to make it back to the TARDIS. She's being attacked. Mm-hmm. She's slicing robots in half It's slow motion, as it's I already, recall.
2: It, it's so her character so naturally went into that kick-ass. I don't know, killer, I don't know, oh, fight it's... machine, samurai wielding. Well, she is. Know, she is girl. Scottish. She's Scottish
0: <laughs> Have you met many Scottish women? Jeez. No I haven't I've
2: been deprived um,
0: But what do I like about this I I like that the concept is so brutal You know there's the old Amy You know she's there at the TARDIS I think she's she's looking from side to side She's thinking the door's going to open And then the decision's made That they're going to leave her there yeah. And keep the young Amy who, I'm not sure how they got a hold of a young Amy as well. I'm sort of confused on that now in my head. I might have to go back and rewatch it. But
2: yeah, some kind of timey-wimey thing to do with yeah, time. Tar- some yeah. trick.
0: We're going to keep this Amy who none of this happened to, and that Amy out there is not going to exist. And you think, well, that's okay on one level because Amy still exists. But this yeah. f- fragment of Amy, um, who is a real sentient thinking person, is about to just melt away into nothing.
2: Yeah, an identity. Yeah, yeah, it's that's real. They they killed her. Yeah, it was brutal. Brutal is the perfect word, really. It is, and yeah, respect. That's I don't know. That's why we watch Doctor Who for that mind opening brutalness. Sometimes that's why we read literature. That's why we have drama. Well, you, you gotta take it. <laughs>
0: well, precisely, the word drama is is huge in this because it's yeah. drama. It's it's not. Oh, we've got young Amy and old Amy. I'm gonna wave the sonic screwdriver and old Amy, you can live there forever um, because I've done something magical. And oh, look, I've made a, a, another Rory and he can live with you too. And oh, isn't this great? We've we've had a great time and everyone's happy. You know, it's it's no. <laughs> this this Amy is going to just disappear. <laughs> Yep. It's brutal as hell, but it's real And I wish, you know, particularly in episodes uh, I'd, I, I won't single out any other episodes from, you know, Doctor Who of recent years But they okay. they sometimes do things that are a little too magical And just a little too, oh, we're just trying to give this a really sweet ending When it doesn't need it And in fact, the ah. drama would be enhanced if they just did more brutal things to people And if people stayed dead when you kill them uh, and yeah. so on. I could talk about that for another hour.
2: Yeah, uh, that's I know, but that's why we have shows like Game of Thrones.
3: <laughs> true, true. But- I,
2: I totally. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't. They could incorporate that more. True. Uh, ugh, I, I like I like how they do it, though. I don't know. It's so rare. I feel like it's a huge trend that everybody's just making brutal television um dramas now and doctor who is sort of alone and yeah maybe it's becoming less popular because of it because they always give us that happy ending a lot of the time um. um but god i i'm all for it i uh i'm gonna i'm just old i'm i i live in a world of buffy the vampire slayer and all that campy stuff so that's where i'm coming from and, and it is it's vastly different from what's now like on tv what's is. currently being written. It is. It's a It's a culture change.
0: It is. And, and now that you bring it up, I mean, because I lived through Buffy and I've kind of left that behind years ago now, not in the sense that I no longer care about it, but I just watched it a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, whereas you've watched it probably more recently than me and can perhaps see the the difference between it and modern television. And that's, that's a really interesting thing to point out. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: it's sort of recent. And yes, I definitely noticed it. And I, I, I buy into it. Like I do, I get it. I'm part of this culture too. It's just, I don't know, so different mm. to be. I, I I'm a part of my identity. I identify myself so much with the television I watch. I guess <laughs> I, I'm having an internal identity crisis. Interesting. Anyway, so that's another discussion. We're playing a game here.
7: <laughs> well,
0: you've given your three, and I've given my three, and we didn't get bingo on any of them.
2: I'm kind of
0: disappointed but at the same time it's kind of good it shows that there is such diversity in the Matt Smith era it's not like when you talk about say the fifth Doctor era and say give me three episodes that you like Caves Mm -hmm. of Androzani would be one of them for everyone Uh you know just about Um, or when you look at other Doctor's eras there are just episodes that everyone likes whereas here we've picked stuff and I think with each other's choices, we've both gone, oh, yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. You yeah. know, I could have you picked know that why?
2: one. It's because you told us only to pick three. <laughs> it worked out. It worked out. This one's fun.
0: I guess that just leaves my runner-up. And to be fair, I, I, I'd love to give yeah, you uh, a runner-up as well, if there was something you really, really, you know, loved but couldn't yeah. include.
2: Sure, I'll take that up. Okay. So, yes. What, what's your runner-up?
0: My runner-up is The Doctor's Wife.
2: Ah, I was hoping you would pick that one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was beautiful. Oh, it was so great to actually have a humanoid version of the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. She was excellent. I don't know who she is, but so good.
0: Her her name is Suran Jones. Um, okay. yeah. and, and yes, she made it. And another actor or actress I don't think, you know, might have done as well.
2: No, no. Oh, they, uh, she has a real ability to talk. Fast. It was very Doctor-ish. It definitely just kind of a, a component of the Doctor. They were one. They. It was such a perfect match-up. She w- encompassed the Tardis and Doctor mentality perfectly.
0: And the way she looked too. I was, you know, in some scenes she looks old. In some scenes she looks young. I couldn't. Yep. I couldn't quite get a, a feel for for the actress behind the the role. I'm, and that made. Her interesting to look at as the character of the TARDIS.
2: Yeah, I guess that's an interesting and, and important trait. Mm. To be that role. Yeah, to be kind of ageless.
0: And the clothes she was wearing—obviously, the clothes are the clothes that the person in the story was wearing before they became the TARDIS, before they died, and you know mm. the TARDIS entered their soul or whatever that was supposed to be all about. Um, but that that old-fashioned dress sort of suited what the TARDIS might wear.
2: It it did and it was blue mm, mm. <laughs> it
0: was
2: blue <laughs>
0: um, other concepts in it the TARDIS junkyard um, those message cubes oh so, yeah. so I can't hardly believe that it's not in my top three but it's mm. just not um,
2: yeah for some reason I don't know it, it was perfect really though yeah I can't, I can't think of any criticism at the moment and- I, yeah
0: I was going to say, it gave me such high hopes for when Neil Gaiman came back to do Nightmare and Silver, but I didn't like that half as much as The Doctor's Wife.
2: No, yeah, that episode was weird. The Doctor's Wife was really something something special. I learned the word Petrichor from that episode.
0: (laughs) Well, that's something.
2: Yes. Yeah, the smell of dust after rain. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad (laughs) you mentioned that one. Somebody had to as well.
0: We are
1: in your universe now, Doctor. Why should it matter to me in which room you die? I can kill you just as easily here as anywhere. Fear me. I've killed hundreds of Time Lords. Fear me. I've killed
2: all of them. And I was going to mention the Big Bang, because that episode, as mind-boggling as it was, um, was really incredible. So much (laughs) happens. Everybody nearly dies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. practically does die and they all get back to life and that um the metaphor for the wedding um the something uh old something blue something um I borrowed the tardis it was just a perfect uh interweaving of worlds and the circumstance and of course like just the love for the doctor and Amy mm. and Rory finally getting married. It was the perfect ending for a season. They wound it up so well. They built it up really well. I don't know. I had to mention that. The Big Bang.
1: There was a crack in time in the wall of your bedroom, and it's been eating away at your life for a long time now. Amy Bond. All alone. A girl who didn't make sense. How could I resist? how could I just forget? Nothing is ever forgotten. Not really. But you have to try.
3: Doctor, it's speeding up! There's
1: gonna be a very big bang, big bang too. Try and remember your family and they'll be there.
3: How can I remember them if they never existed? Because
1: you're special. That crack in your wall all that time. The universe pouring into your head. You brought Worry back. You can bring them back too. you just remember. And they'll be there.
2: You won't...
1: You'll have your family back. You won't need your imaginary friend anymore. <sighs> <sighs> Amy boss Cry Crying over me, eh? guess what what gotcha
0: i would have loved if amy and rory left at that point
2: oh yeah that could have been yeah but season six we've mentioned a couple of episodes in season six that well i guess you tried to You killed Amy in one of your choices, and (laughs) I chose A Christmas Carol in which they don't actually really appear. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it says something. Yeah, you're right. It could have been a good ending. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's just my... I always bang on about it. I just love to see doctors with different companions, and and if a modern doctor these days only lasts three years or three and a half years or whatever, um, to use a companion across two or three series, it's like, no, show him with someone else.
2: But yeah, I I pointed out today, the 11th Doctor really shines when he's introduced to in new characters. And same with the 12th. I think that goes with most Doctors that I can think of. The 9th, yes. Dave Tennant. Yeah, R. well,
0: from yeah. a, a behind-the-scenes point of view, it shows actors having someone new to bounce off, someone different, sort of, you know, ooh, okay, um, I've got to react differently to this person. And, and it, it makes things sparkle. You know, I think when characters get, uh, actors get into their characters too much, it becomes maybe like an old pair of slippers, and, you know, Capaldi slips into Capaldi mode, and, you know, Jenna slips into Clara mode, and it's just, you know, it's it's not as sparkling as if it was someone new and different there.
2: Yeah, yeah, somehow.
0: You know, you... I was going to say you think of the Beatles recording Let It Be, how's this for a tangent and um, you know they're they're fighting and they're not getting along and then one of them decides to get in Billy Preston the uh, the keyboardist who does like the big keyboard solo in Get Back and um, he put everyone on their best behaviour and everyone wanted to impress Billy and everyone started getting along you know you see the same in offices when you know someone new comes in for the day from another office and everyone is suddenly on their best behaviour you know it's there's a sparkle when new people are around in, in all sorts of situations, let alone, you know, T V roles.
2: Right. Yeah. Good analogies. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They have to have that that balance.
0: Anyway, it's we're getting just... onto the Capaldi era now and we should really yeah. stick to Smith. Um, in summary, I mean we've we've given a little summary, but do you have anything yeah. else to say about the the Matt Smith era?
2: Um Matt Smith era. Uh, we we could summarize what makes Matt Smith so special.
0: Okay, what makes him special for you?
2: Uh, his his kookiness. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: I like how he incorporates some of the old, like Patrick Troughton. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, you know, the ability to be very serious about something that makes absolutely no sense, and yet at the same time does make sense. Uh, mm. And uh, his his range of um, being so convincing. And motivating, and also uh, hilarious, and maybe a, like has a bit of an attitude. Also, there's just a huge range that goes with him, and he can play football. <laughs> uh, I think I'm done. Yeah.
0: Okay. For me, I was worried when he got the role. I thought he was so young, which is weird because my doctor, the Fifth Doctor, was previously the youngest man to play the role himself. Um, so it wasn't without precedent that I already liked young doctors, but I was worried. Uh but a few episodes in I sort of got where he was going and I really went with it and I thought this guy's this guy's surprising you know, in a good yeah, way.
2: Surprising, yes. He always he was always surprising,
0: yeah. Um and even when some storylines didn't sparkle, he still sparkled and the way he delivered the lines, he was still giving it all he had. And I can respect that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of respect. He will be missed. He is missed.
0: He is missed. He (laughs) is for sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Alrighty. What about you at home? What are your favorite 11th Doctor stories and why? Why not write in and tell us or even record an MP3 and send that to us instead? I'm sure I'd be happy to listen to that as would Lex.
2: I would be. We missed out a lot of favorite episodes here. I know you guys have them
0: exactly so get them in Well, here we are at the end of the 7th Doctor Who show. Thanks as always to Lex, Ian, Jim, Bob and Kevin for their contributions this time around. I hope you all enjoyed it out there. If you did, why not drop us a line at hello at net and tell us all about it. We'd really like that. We really, really would. Anyway, until next we speak on August 28th, take care, keep watching your Doctor Who and uh, I'll talk to you then. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.